We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm Alan Williams, as always, with the illustrious James DiVirgilio. What a week. What a week. We got a great show for you guys today. We're going to get all into the Dan Mullen hiring. We're going to talk about our feelings, where we're headed, how did it happen, all that good stuff. We're going to take a look at the FSU game for a minute, all the big national games, talk about the Iron Bowl, the Tennessee hiring, so much stuff to talk about. Going to be a really good show, James. It is indeed. I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff. I've been getting... Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Blown up with text messages. I've participated in heated arguments. I've laid down monetary bets with friends and publicly on Facebook. I am ready to get into this. Last week, we made a prediction for when Florida would be hiring a new coach. And I said Sunday, you said Monday. Uh, I said, I, I think actually specifically that the press conference would be either on Monday or Tuesday, but that we would know for sure on Sunday. And it wound up happening totally a different situation than I expected. I had thought last week that it would have been either Chip Kelly or Scott Frost being announced on Sunday. I did not think it would have been Dan Mullen. I will save my reaction because I want to get yours first, Alan. Your gut reaction on Sunday when you're in Moscow and you know and you see the news, much like all of us did, that Dan Mullen is going to be the next coach of the Florida Gators. Both surprise and a little disappointment slash major disappointment. I think it's a pretty big fall for me moving from Chip Cully, which I had moved on from you know early in the week. And Scott Frost, which I think are both really buzzy hires and exciting hires and I think really high potential hires to a guy that we had kind of crossed off our list in terms of 
who we wanted. And so it felt, I don't know, it felt deflating a little bit, especially in the early going. And I've, you know, I said a few minutes ago to you off air here, but I've 10% talked myself into that and I'll give some reasons for that. But I know you had a little bit stronger reaction. Give me, give me your initial gut reaction. It was a doubling of, of complete anger, frustration, and depression all at the same time. Like I, I, I saw the news and I thought, oh no, no, please don't be real. I had posted in late October on my own Facebook page that I heard Dan Mullen was going to be a primary target and that made me nervous. And I was nervous because I didn't want him to get hired because I remember the Dan Mullen here in 2008 and I remember the firedanmullen.com website. I remember the frustration with the shotgun draws 15 times in a row. I remember the meta discussion is, is this Urban's fault or is this Dan Mullen's fault? And I just recall how much I disliked that offense. And it's well known on this very podcast how much I dislike spread option run-based offenses. I just dislike them, you know, with the very principle of them, with the fact that I think it's very difficult to beat elite teams running such a system. And we're going to get into that later on with the Dan Mullen hire. And all of these thoughts came to my mind. But most importantly, I think all of the listeners now know that I'm a very analytical person when it comes to football, but really at the top of my tree in life is style. I prefer style over other things. Um, I, I like style. I want my teams to be stylish, to have some swag, to play with a entertaining style. And the Dan Mullen hire on Sunday felt like a death sentence to my Gator football fandom because this style is one that I personally just loathe. I loathe it. I just don't like watching it. And now I'm stuck thinking, I have to watch this. I have to support this again. I thought I was done with this in 08 slash 09 with Steve Adazio. And now it's back. And that's my maybe the sum of my greatest football fear, was I did not want to have a guy that had this kind of style. I believe Strickland, when he said he wanted to go after guys with style, I think he did go after those guys, and we're going to unpack that here in a second. But my gut reaction to this was just utter depression mixed with anger. And it was sort of just one of the worst-case scenario results for me, even though there are certainly other sides to this argument. And if you find yourself listening to me right now thinking, well, wait a minute, James, here's all these things, we'll get to them. But my gut reaction was not a good one. And it really did lead me to pronounce to multiple of my friends that this was sort of the end of my football fandom. I've reached the end of the road. We're eight years in. And this just sort of took whatever remained in my excited soul for watching this team play. And so for me, Sunday, Sunday was as low as I've been as a Gator fan in my lifetime, culminating with the Dan Mullen hire. That was like the final nail in my Gator coffin. And today, on Monday, we're going to have to analytically discuss where this goes from here. So it should be interesting. But that's where I was, Alan. And, and today, I'm not, I'm not in a different place. I'm not in a different place. I'm still in that same place. And I have not moved myself over to the, hey, he's our coach. I feel great now. I'm going to believe. I, I don't believe. I feel very bad. And I feel very sad. Yeah, it felt a very conservative hire. And, you know, after we got, you know, left at the altar with Chip Kelly and never maybe even got on a date with Scott Frost, um, maybe 
that's where they felt they need to go. Maybe who was the number three guy all along, but this has been quite a saga. Um, let's start with Chip Kelly, and we'll maybe get to Scott Frost for a minute. What happened there? What went wrong? Is this a case of Florida misplaying its hand? Um, is this just a weird move by Chip Kelly? What happened there? I think I've heard a lot of things talked about, and there's a couple things that I believe are are wrong. And I want to start with the first one, which is that Chip Kelly didn't come to Florida because Florida is no longer as desirable as it once was. Whether you like the analogy that Florida was a 10 and now we're like a five or whatever analogy you want to go with, I've heard all of them thrown out there that Florida is not a desirable job. I do not agree in the case of Chip Kelly, and we'll start there. You have heard on this very podcast that I thought Chip Kelly was going to go to UCLA earlier this year before either one of those jobs was open. And you have heard on this very podcast that Chip Kelly does not like the college football game. It's widely known he wants to get back into the NFL. And therefore, if UCLA comes available, that is a better job for Chip Kelly to get into the NFL faster. Why? Because it's a conference he's already dominated. It's a conference with coaches that are not as good as Nick Saban. It's a conference where he can easily go out there and rekindle the recruiting relationships he had. So it saves him time. I do not think that even Chip Kelly would say that UCLA is a better job than Florida. And if Chip Kelly liked coaching college football and he actually wanted to stay a college football coach, I have to imagine that right now he would say in private that Florida is a much better job than UCLA. But that is not what Chip Kelly is using. And I do think, Alan, what we said on this very pod last week is exactly what happened. Chip Kelly was dragging out these negotiations with Florida. The message board people that love to tout their sources were all on the fact that everything is fine. Trust this process. We're just hammering out details, hammering out details, hammering out details. Well, that was a load of garbage. Chip Kelly was waiting for this UCLA job to come available. UCLA, as I think we prognosticated, Alan, with a storyline last week, essentially sent a feeler to Chip's people, probably on the weekend. Chip came back with, yes, I'll listen. They fired Jim Mora one week early. They talked to Chip, and in a matter of days, a deal is done. So let this lesson be to all of you as football fans, and to Alan and I included. It does not take weeks to get a football contract negotiated. And where this story ends with us hiring Dan Mullen is a perfect indication of that. It does not take weeks. So when the message board guys are out there telling you, oh, they're negotiating over this and over that and whatever and blah, blah, blah. It's a bunch of garbage. It's a bunch of hot garbage. It does not take that long. Now, am I mad at Chip Kelly for stringing us along? No, absolutely not. I think Chip Kelly would have come to coach here. If the UCLA job wasn't open, he would have come to Florida. And for those of you that think he's not a good fit and it wouldn't have worked, I totally disagree. Chip Kelly would have won, and he would have won fabulously here at the University of Florida. He is the best of the spread option run-based guys. Now, you've heard me hammer this offense all along. I do. Chip Kelly runs a very similar version. I think Chip Kelly post-NFL probably mixes in some new concepts, which is one of the reasons why I wanted him. But regardless, Chip Kelly would have been tremendously successful. I think it's a delusion to say, oh, we didn't want him. He didn't want to be here, blah, blah, blah. That's what losers say when something doesn't go your way. The reality is Chip would have done phenomenally well here. And if he was here for 40 years, it would have been worth those four years. But that didn't happen, and I'm not mad at Chip. I think he made a decision that fits his end goal. And now, Alan, that moves us to Scott Frost. And Scott Frost is the same thing. His parents live in Lincoln. We said on this podcast in September, 
Hey, I'd love to have Scott Frost. Kiwan Ratliff mentioned Scott Frost. I'd love to have Scott Frost. Scott Frost is going to Nebraska. And that's ultimately what is going to happen. He's from Lincoln. He played there. He won a national championship there. He's got a newborn. I don't care that his wife hates Nebraska or whatever people like to say. She's going to be there with parental support from his parents. And he's going to go home to where he's from to rescue that program. That is not an indictment on Florida not being attractive. Those are two very, very unique situations. So yes, we miss on our first two targets, but there's logical reasons as to why that happened. They are not going to Tennessee over us or some other program that's sort of equally unemotionally attached and or not serving an ultimate goal. So for me, that's sort of the groundwork for where we are. And then Sunday comes along, and I think if you're anything like me, you don't really know who the next target is. And now you're wondering who the next target is. And out of nowhere, it's reported that we're on Dan Mullen. And you think to yourself, well, why are we on Dan Mullen? Well, we're on Dan Mullen because Tennessee was on Dan Mullen and Tennessee was going to hire Dan Mullen. And so you can imagine that Scott Strickland, the former Mississippi State athletic director, former alum, current alum, I suppose, former graduate, (laughs) he gets word (laughs) from his Mississippi State people that his coach is leaving. And hey, if he's going to leave, maybe you should take a crack at him. And so I'm not sure if Dan Mullen was number three. Nobody knows this for sure. They're packaging it that way now. But I would guess the answer to that question is probably no. And that what happened was there was, I don't want to say a panic button pressed, because I don't think Strickland's the guy who panics. But I think after getting rejected twice, there was a little bit of, well, I don't want my safe guy. And we talked a lot about this, Alan, the various floor guys we sort of had in our campaign here for a coaching search. I don't want my floor guy to go to Tennessee. Because then I'm left in a situation where I don't know what might happen, and maybe his fears got the best of him. But I don't believe for a second that he woke up on Sunday morning and thought, I'm hiring Dan Mullen. I'm not sure what he thought, but I don't think it was that. And I think when he saw Tennessee was going to hire Dan Mullen, he moved into action, and a few hours or even minutes later, we swoop in, we steal Dan Mullen from Tennessee, the contract is signed, it's announced, and we're having a press conference here on Monday. So that seems to be the storyline, and Alan... I wanted to walk through the timeline, but now fill me in with sort of your thoughts on the saga. Am I crazy with my own timeline? Of course, this stuff's not reported, right? We're just sort of reading between the lines. We're doing what we do on this podcast, which is giving you the analysis of what we think is really happening. Yeah, I think you're spot on with most of, most of that. The Chip Kelly stuff was, I mean, it was so crazy. I've rarely seen, I don't know, more smoke signals and like, rumors and every other kind of conjecture. I mean, people were reporting for weeks that this was a done deal. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. I mean, some national sports writers on on Twitter were reposting some of those tweets of people calling them idiots, saying it's a done deal. You don't know what you're talking about. Obviously, it was not a done deal. And there's, of course, the speculation that we had some kind of contract with Chip Kelly that he could back out of. I have no idea whether that's true. That seems kind of crazy. But we talked about, I mean, the speculation with Chip Kelly all along, he's a West Coast guy who preferred to be on the West Coast. Florida is such an intriguing job that he would maybe take it. And LA is, I think, culturally maybe a better fit for him. Uh, when you're the head coach in Gainesville, you're the head coach, you're maybe the most famous person in the city, um, or you're definitely the most famous person in the city, unless Steve Spurs walking around, I guess. And that's a different kind of life than living in LA or Philadelphia or San Francisco or things like that. So I could see that being appealing to him. I think your theory about the NFL holds a lot of water for me. And 
yeah, just a kind of a situation where, you know, that was his preference. And then with Scott Frost, I think this was the looming thing all along. You know, our only hope was with him was that he valued, I guess, success or big time success more than that kind of emotion and connection. That's so hard. I mean, I have to think if I'm a football coach and let's say Florida, you know, is not the same place that it is in the hierarchy of college football, let's say it was like a, you know, a Mississippi state or something like that. And I got offered a different kind of job. I don't, I don't know that I could turn Florida down just because I love the place and want to see it succeed. And so when your alma mater comes calling, you know, and different people feel differently about that kind of stuff. It's not surprising me that he took the job at all. And now that we're at Tennessee, I think that timeline sounds right. I mean, we, when you start looking at some of these other names, and we'll get to them in a second, I, I'm intrigued by some of them, but none of them are grand slams behind Dan Mullen. And I think you're right that maybe Scott Strickland felt like he had to move. And okay, let me just talk about Tennessee for a second. If you're feeling bad about our situation right now just go take a look up there in the state of Tennessee and just feel great that we are not Tennessee if you're not aware they were on the verge of hiring Greg Schiano former records coach former Tampa Bay Bucks coach current Ohio State defensive coordinator and it word leaked out that they were basically it was a like they had signed part of the paperwork I guess I'm not sure exactly some kind of memorandum and everybody lost their mind. Um, I don't think anybody wanted in Tennessee's fan base wanted Greg Schiano. It felt like too much Butch Jones 2.0. But where they really focused in on was his connection to the Penn State scandal. And I think that was leverage enough to like stop the whole thing. This is crazy. I've never seen this before where coaches all but hired. It would be like yesterday if we were said, Hey, we're gonna fire hire Dan Mullen, and everybody just lost their collective mind and they backed out of it. That's essentially what happened at Tennessee yesterday. And so both sides looked at each other like, we can't go through with this. It's already too terrible. I mean, that was amazing that basically a fan base led by, you know, some high profile people, but then you had state legislator and senators and governors, like all chiming in saying, this is a bad idea. It was nuts. Um, I, I was watching it un, you know, kind of unfurl on Twitter and I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, Twitter, this shows the power of Twitter and it also shows the power of the people. And and I I loved it in a certain stance and segment of it, which I'm going to talk about here in a second, but first I want to say this could be something where you stick a marker in the ground and say this is where coaching football has changed forever was with this failed wow. Tennessee hire. And I'm going to tell you why. We live in a world where Amazon and Yelp and TripAdvisor, right? Those companies do really well. And one of the main reasons they do really well is they have fantastic peer-based review systems. So I love Yelp. It's no secret, right? I want to go to a restaurant. I take a look at the ratings and what do I find? I find my favorite restaurant has, you know, a four and a half star rating and I can look what people order. And it's a really helpful way to sort of gauge what's good and what's bad. Well, one thing that's missing in these in these coaching searches is what the fans actually want. And hey, let's face it, the fans are the ones that fund these programs. The end yeah. use the end user is your student athlete. I I believe wholeheartedly in that. You know, you hire coaches for the student athletes, but secondarily to them are your fans. 
And why wouldn't you take the temperature of what they're doing before you do it? And so the old school mentality is sort of, let's just hire a guy, we're the authority, it's my job. The new school mentality just may be, and I think this would be wise, to function as an Amazon rating or a Yelp rating and say, okay, hey, you know what? I'm thinking about this guy. How do you feel, right? Now, you can't float this officially, not publicly, at least not yet, but I think this could be that kind of marker. Remember this day when Tennessee essentially overthrew a coaching pick, and now maybe you see athletic directors focus more on not just what the boosters want or what their committee wants, but what does the average fan want, and Allen, Twitter is the mouthpiece for that because before yeah. fans could be really frustrated and they'd go in their own homes or they'd write letters to the editorial, they'd call on a radio show, but Twitter has a lot of power and that's how senators and politicians get involved because people really start, start you know losing their minds over this. But I think there could be something to this and I don't think it's horrible. And I want to bring up our own situation as we kind of contextualize this conversation from as best as I can tell, the reaction to Dan Mullen seems to be something like this, 15 to 20 to 25%, maybe as high as 30% are like, okay, fine, I understand it. Dan Mullen's our coach. I haven't found a percentage of people that are really excited that Dan Mullen's our coach, but they've got to be out there. So let's give them maybe 5%. And I'm going to say the rest vary from unhappy to like entirely disappointed. I don't know if anyone yeah. is like outraged because of the reasons we're going to talk about with regards to Dan Mullen and his resume. But disappointed would be the narrative I think most people would put on this hire. Now, you imagine if you're Dan Mullen, you're coming back to Gainesville, you're doing your press conference, you kind of know the fan base is not really stoked about you. And that also says something about Dan Mullen, which we're going to talk about, and his, his ability to compete, which I like. But long story short than it is, Tennessee may have just changed the game for coaching hires. They may have possibly changed it, and, and that doesn't mean they're going to get a good coach with their next coach. But I think there is some merit to say, Let's hire a guy that excites the fan base. And it's through that lens, Alan, I want to look at this Dan Mullen hire. So we talked a lot as we kind of whittled down our coaches about guys we liked and guys we didn't like. And one of the main things I think both you and I were using was this concept of like a high ceiling and this concept of like an excitement factor. So some of these guys you don't know yet, they could flame out, but there's an excitement factor about them because you don't know what their potential yet is. So is Dan Mullen a better hire than some of those guys that we had higher on our list? And I'm going to walk you through some of the guys that I had. We didn't talk to Matt Campbell at Iowa State. We didn't talk to Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State. We didn't talk to Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. We did or did not, I don't think we ever really did talk to Taggart at Oregon. We didn't talk to Mike Norvell at Memphis, and we didn't talk to Charlie Strong at USF. Now, I just named a bunch of guys, but everyone on this show is very familiar with those names in these searches. Does Mullen excite you more than any of those guys on the list? Was he a better hire than those guys on the list? Like, just give me your general fan excitement sort of meter. If we could name it, you know, each one of those guys, would you pick Mullen over them or not as pure excitement? I know that's this is kind of an interesting little ex experiment here because we kind of moved him off the list. I mean, certainly more than the guy that we've talked about would have been a, a disaster of a hire would be Charlie Strong, of course. Um, and, you know, would I prefer to have Willie Taggart and Campbell and I think even Gundy? Yes. Um, but when you look at each of those guys, this is the interesting thing. So we have no idea whether Willie Taggart would come. First year at Oregon, just moved his whole family up there. He's in a good spot. That's a good job. 
would he leave after one year? No idea. Matt Campbell's got a huge buyout, a huge buyout, over $9 million. That could just be too much. Um, and Mike Gundy, you know, you brought him up a lot. I have not heard him once. No conjecture on no lists. I have no idea. Maybe that means he wasn't interested at all. Who knows? And then a guy like Mark, Mike Norvell, a total wild card. I mean, I think I would be more excited about Mike Norvell, but also be more nervous, much more nervous that it could be a, just a complete, complete disaster, that he, it's way too big for him, and he's not that good of a coach, and he makes a bunch of wrong hires, and he doesn't know what he's doing, has no idea about the pressure of Gainesville. And then I guess the other guy was Justin Fuente, who you know, we said might be a long shot all along because of seemingly the perfect fit with Virginia Tech. So if you start looking down the line there, you know, if you don't get tag, if Taggart's not really an option, if Campbell's not really an option, Fuente and Gundy aren't going to move. Campbell's buyout's too big. You don't want strong. And you just maybe size up Norvell and Mullen. Maybe I do take Dan Mullen in that situation. And I could see where Strickland felt like he had to go and make this hire at this moment because if all those guys, other, all those other guys turn him down, then who are you hiring? I don't know. I don't know who's on the eighth person on that list. It's not a good look. And I think that's exactly where his mind went. And we chronicled this for a while. My best floor guy was Mike Gundy. You know, there's been no talk about Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy, from what we know, applied for the job last time around. That's where those rumors came from. Now, whether or not he still wants it this time around, who really knows? But excitement level-wise, and I'll start there, you know, I'd be more excited with Taggart, Norvell, Campbell, really any one of those guys besides Charlie Strong. He would be lower than Dan Mullen, but not by much. And in fact, I could make arguments for him to be maybe higher, but I think I'd take Dan over Charlie given the fantastic flame out he had at Texas and you know how much I stick to my three-year rule. So you illustrate the interesting part though. All these other guys were put in our tier two category. We sort of had a tier one far and away better than everyone else. And we talked to both of them. I feel like Strickland deserves credit for that. I do not feel like he's mishandled the process. I also don't feel like the Dan Mullen hire on Sunday is a bad hire. And that's where this, there's two parts to this. And so I, I want this to be clearly understood. As much as I am listening to the Simon and Garfunkel song, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, you know, I've, <laughs> I've come to talk to you again. Here I am. That is a lot based upon the style with which Dan Mullen coaches. It is not at all, I feel like, strategically a poor decision. And on this show, that's where we live, right? We live in the non-emotional world saying analytically, is this a good or bad decision? I think Scott Strickland knows behind closed doors that Dan Mullen is not the style most Gator fans want. I think he knows that, and I think that's why he wasn't the first choice, and he tried to upgrade that. And then I think he knew, Alan, what you just said. Okay, so Mike Norvell is tearing it up right now. They have an excellent passing offense. It fits more traditionally with what Florida fans would want in an offense. He's in year two in Memphis. He's going to play the championship game this week against Scott Frost. A lot of question marks there. Doesn't have a great tie to assistant coaches. Doesn't have any recruiting ties to Florida. This job could be way bigger than he is. A lot of upside, a lot of fun, could be a flame out. So then you go to your four guys like we talked about, and you're comparing him versus Charlie Strong. Uh, will Charlie Strong even leave USF after one year? You know, there's a lot of questions to be asked. And I think he thought to himself, let me take the sure thing. I know that Dan Mullen will check all these boxes, which he does. I know also that he's not going to excite the fan base. But let me give Dan Mullen a chance to prove that he's more than what most people think he is. And that's a that's a perfectly fine narrative. 
Now, let me emotionally for a second show you where I am. I've talked a lot about it, but let me let me make a statement I made yesterday. Everyone on this show should know how much I hate Lane Kiffin. I hate that man. I think that he's a very classless person. I would not want him steering our program. I think on the other side of things, he's probably the best offensive coordinator in all of college football. He's got a fantastic football mind. He's a reckless person to hire. I've never talked to him, but the decisions he's made in his own personal life and how he handles his business, not a guy that I respect. So maybe hates the wrong word. Let's say that I don't respect Lane Kiffin. So I certainly don't want him to be my head football coach of Florida. But the reality is, and this is crazy that I'm even about to say this, I would rather excitement level, excitement level, have Lane Kiffin be the head coach at Florida because there's a chance that he's turned the corner and he's fantastically successful. He recruits like crazy and he runs an amazing offense, right? Now, keep in mind, again, that's a total problem because of all the other characteristics Lane Kiffin brings with him. But I'm just trying to illustrate how flat this hire was for me, even though, even though, Alan, like we just mentioned, like we just talked about, we probably talked about it for too many minutes on this pod already. This was a perfectly fine and defensible analytical hire given the current landscape. It just does not excite the fan base. And I think after eight years of malaise, I was all in on having someone to be excited about. And if it flamed out, I'm okay, because then you hire the next guy to be excited about. And I think it's well chronicled that that's sort of my view on coaching searches is always hire a really exciting guy. And if they flame out, go to the next one, because the safe guys rarely ever work out. Now, Mullen is maybe the most intriguing of the safe guys. And that's what we're going to talk about now. So let's move into talking about Dan Mullen, the coach. Let's look at his resume. Let's look at what he's done. Let's see if we can create a case either to believe or not to believe, or what should we even expect of this guy, Alan? Because I think emotionally, we know that most of Gator Nation is somewhere between disenchanted to, okay, he's my guy, but there's not a lot of like, oh, I love this guy. I can't wait to watch him win championships at Florida. So who is Dan Mullen, the coach, and what has he done at Mississippi State? Let's start there. And then we're going to work backwards to what has he done at Florida during that special time between 05 and 08 when we won two national titles. And then we'll kind of tie all this stuff together as to what do we think he's going to do through Florida. Now, Alan, I want to walk us through some of these comments, some of these notes that I have made here first. And first, I want to start with his record at Mississippi State. So Dan Mullen goes 69 and 45, which is an 8 and 5 per season average. He wins 60 plus percentage of his games which is the best in the modern era at Mississippi State. He finishes 33-39 and 39 in conference. Okay, I think Dan Mullen is the best coach in Mississippi State's history. There were some guys way back in the 30s and 40s that had some really nice records. Not the same as today. I think Dan Mullen's the best coach in their history. I'm going to start with that. Here's what he did at Mississippi State. He finished the season ranked twice. He went 2-16 and 16 in ranked matchups. He won 10 games only one time. He went 0-9 against Nick Saban, scoring double-digit points only three times in that game. He was 5-13 against Auburn and LSU and went 5-4 against his chief rival in Ole Miss. His passing offense on average during his nine-year tenure was 74th in the country. His rushing offense was 40th. He was 53rd in total offense on average. And the spread option run system generally average 56% run and 46% pass. That's about the goal of a spread option based run offense. So you would expect that. 
So those are the stats. Alan, your reaction to those stats. Give me either the case for why that's great or why you're disappointed or whatever. Just react to sort of that statistical package. Yeah, without any context, it's pretty bleak. You would never say, oh, man, look at this guy. He's been so successful. Let's hire him. Because like you would with a guy like Scott Frost in a group of five where he's dominating. The appeal of Dan Mullen is you have to situate him in his context in the SEC West, the peak, the best period in the history of the SEC West, or you know, it's not that long of a history, but probably even of those group of teams. This has been a high point for Ole Miss. It's been one of the high points for Alabama. It's been a high point for LSU. Arkansas was good at certain points. Um, it's really just brutal. So the fact that he was able to stay alive at a place like Mississippi State and not just get ground to a pulp and fired within two years is the thing that's impressive. So when you're looking at his record, it's like hiring James Franklin away from Vanderbilt. You know, James Franklin didn't win any SEC East. He never even won. I don't know if he ever won. He didn't win 10 games. But if you can win there, it's like, okay, well, maybe let's give you a chance at the big time and see if what you can do with a premier set of players and better facilities and recruiting grounds and all that kind of stuff. So on one hand, it's very unimpressive. And then you look at it from another direction and it's extremely impressive. Yeah. And you nailed, I think the, the really the model. And I think in life it's important to model. Can you find a model for this person? And if so, do I like it? James Franklin is the model for Dan Mullen. For obvious reasons, Vanderbilt's the worst team in the SEC East. It's the hardest to win at. Mississippi State's the worst team in the West. It's the hardest to win at. They play against excellent competition. Dan Mullen has faced fierce competition in the West, above average historically. Uh, and he has done very well, 33 and 39, with the athletes you can recruit at Mississippi State, generally two to three stars on average. Very, very impressive. And the case then becomes, can he do what Franklin is doing at Penn State? And that's intriguing. That's intriguing. And I'll be the first to admit, if I could wave a wand and change Dan Mullen's offense and not make him a spread option guy based upon a running quarterback who's probably 240 pounds and your primary play is shotgun draw or zone read, I'm all on board. I'm all on board and I'm one of the guys believing in the upside of Dan Mullen. But the reality is I just know how Dan Mullen runs offense and I dislike it. And we said from the beginning of the year, the first thing we said on this pod, Allen, was what matters more to you this year? And the answer was style. It was style for me. I want to play football that's entertaining. And so, given what you said, I think Dan Mullen is going to win at Florida. I think he's absolutely going to be better than Will Muschamp, better than Jim McElwain, better than Ron Sook. I do not think he's going to be as good as Urban Meyer or Steve Spurrier. And my coaching search is to always find guys that are at that level. And I'm so confident in that that I placed a public bet saying, hey, I'll bet $1,000 that Dan Mullen does not win an SEC championship while he's here at Florida. And I feel pretty confident in that because he's got to go through Kirby Smart and most probably Nick Saban to win that SEC title. Those are two teams who understand how to stop his offense extremely well. And unless Dan Mullen can recruit, can recruit at the level of Urban Meyer, that offense has a very hard time succeeding. In fact, I would argue an impossible time succeeding against those kind of defenses. And what do we know about his recruiting levels in Mississippi State? They're not prolific. In fact, they're really relatively average. Recruiting numbers kind of drop off in the mid-2000s, early 2000s. The consensus isn't quite as good. 
But Dan Mullen recruited at about 25th or 26th best in the country every single year. Previous to him, they recruited at about the same. Maybe they were 31st or 32nd. He didn't take a big leap up. Now, the argument is you just can't recruit there. And that very well may be true. But that's a question mark we must tag to Mullen. So if Dan Mullen doesn't get in the top, I'm going to say five classes, which you need to run an Urban Meyer-style offense, I don't know that we can ever beat both of those guys in one season, hence a $1,000 bet. But Alan, I readily acknowledge the model here is James Franklin because James Franklin had a similar sort of conversation at Vanderbilt. He couldn't win a lot of ranked games. He did win some. He won more than Mullen did percentage-wise, but same argument was there. And that's the argument I think those of you that feel good about this hire or are talking yourself into this hire are probably making are probably making. And there's there's validity to that. I would not want you guys to walk away from this pod today thinking, oh man, James hates this hire and thinks there's no rationale on the other side. There is. There's, there's absolutely rationale on the other side to support this hire. Uh, a lot of this indicates, like we said, the style and the feeling. So, so Alan, we're contextualizing this. We're putting this into the sort of, let's look at what he did at a school that's historically very difficult to win at. Let's give him the resources of Florida. Let's give him the recruiting base of Florida. Let's see what he can do. And let me just look at the emotional side of things. So Dan Mullen once called Jeff Collins' move here to Florida a lateral move. His wife, Megan, has gone publicly on the radio and talked about how the expectations of Gator fans are insanely high to the point to when they won games. If they didn't score, she used the word 43 points. She went to the grocery store in Orlando and drove home with groceries as opposed to being seen publicly in Florida. Now, Dan Mullen is aware of what's going on at Florida right now, more so than probably anyone is. He's aware of what's going on. Do you credit him, Alan, for taking this job when he knows what the expectations are like? And he himself has maybe made some comments that I'm sure he wishes now he hasn't made. Do you give him some credit for taking on a challenge like this? I do. And I think he's a guy who understands the pressure cooker because he was here. And the you know, the Gator offense in especially 07-08, we were scoring a ton of points a ton. And as we said, we weren't all that thrilled. I remember at the time people were like, can we get rid of Dan Mullen? Cause it always seemed like, Oh, maybe we could do a little bit more with what we have talent wise. Um, that was kind of the annoying thing. But when you look at the stats, they're gaudy. And I went back and watched some of the highlights of that era this afternoon. And when you have guys like Percy Harvin and Tim Tebow, I mean, they were blowing people out. And it was pretty incredible. And he was still getting criticized. So if you're willing to step back into that, that means you know what you're getting yourself into. You're not going to be McElwain surprised that people are upset with you and you're getting criticism. And what's that about? Um, and I'm sure anytime you go to a place, you're going to praise that place. And maybe at the expense of the place you were just at. And so and I understand him losing a guy like Jeff Collins to Florida when you say something that's like a lateral move. And maybe he meant that you're moving DC to DC and why not? You should be moving DC to head coach. If you're going to move, not that he maybe really thought Florida and Mississippi state were the same, but if he could just been out of frustration as well. And I understand that if you're a competitor, you things like that will piss you off. Um, so I do think that he's eyes wide open into what he, what he's walking into. And I think that's better than maybe what some of the other guys, maybe almost anybody on this list other than Charlie strong that we talked about above would have known and understood actions speak louder than words and in college football they speak infinitely louder than words 
And both these comments by his wife and by himself make perfect sense when you're at the institution you're at. In fact, his comments, his wife's comments, I thought were perfectly reasonable. When you listen to it on the podcast, she's not dogging it. She's really trying to praise the Mississippi State fans for saying they are so supportive even when we're losing. And that's a credit to them. They don't have a culture of winning, but regardless, a credit to them for being supportive even when things are going bad. But I give Dan Mullen a ton of credit. In fact, I'm going to go on a limb here and say this is my number one attribute for Dan Mullen. Because a dude that's going to take a job knowing exactly how the fan base is going to react today, knowing that these Florida fans are not going to be excited about this job, knowing that his own wife is not going to be excited about going to Gainesville, knowing the pressure that exists in this situation at Florida, knowing where we are eight years in, I could go on and on and on. To take this job right now tells me a lot about Dan Mullen's belief in himself and and his belief in his ability to handle pressure. And I think those two things are crucial, crucial components that I'm sure Strickland thought long and hard about. Because if you look at the other guys, if you look at those guys, Norvell, Taggart, strong at Texas, he knows the expectations, he struggled with them. Dan Mullen has done a fantastic job managing being a head coach. And he's got tons of experience. And so I think that is very strongly in his corner. Now, looking at the Gators' success, looking at Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer was asked by Pat Dooley on Monday about Dan Mullen. And he said, Dan's your coach, huh? He understands the lay of the land. He understands recruiting. He understands the expectations of Florida. He'll embrace it. I'm proud of him. Not exactly like a ringing endorsement by Urban. Not to be expected. But he does lay out all those things we just said. That's a head coach saying he knows what he's getting into there. And he's going to embrace it. And I think that's really, really important, Alan. And I want to look back at his success between 05 and 08 because a lot's now getting brought up about it's sort of like being romanticized. Oh my gosh, look how good we were on offense. It's so amazing. Let us not forget that firedanmullen.com was a real thing. And a lot of people wanted him to be ridden out of town because how frustrating it was that year given the play calling. But important note here, we talked a lot about the recruiting. On that roster in 2008, one-fourth one-fourth of the official full roster. This includes all your walk-ons, everyone else, right? 85 to 100 men. One-fourth of them played a game in the NFL. Played a game in the NFL or was currently under contract with the team in the league. 19 of those players were eventually selected in the NFL draft. That is an astounding number of people that went on to play at the next level. And that's why I will continually say... There was a frustration with how that team performed because of how talented they were. We lost Ole Miss that year. We squeaked out a win against Alabama. In fact, I think I remember saying after that game that that's the last time Urban will ever beat Nick Saban because it's all downhill from there. Nick's on to the offense. If we can't win with this talent, we're never going to win. So there was a lot of those frustrations. That's where my frustration comes from. That's my belief in the offense is it's going to struggle mightily against those sort of teams in those situations. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, wait a minute, Nick Saban struggles against running quarterbacks and blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's the case. I think Nick Saban's defense struggles against what any other defense struggles against, super elite athletes doing phenomenal things like Deshaun Watson, right? And again, if you get those guys, which those rosters had, you win. I've been talking a lot with Caleb post his time here on the show, and Caleb is like so far in the corner of talent that it's almost all that matters to him. But I think this illustrates the concept here about offense, Alan is you got to have you got to have the players period to win at that level and if you have those kind of players you'll be successful and that's kind of offense 
can be successful. Now, there's a bonus here that comes with with Dan Mullen, regardless of whether I like his offense. He's going to bring coaches to this job, Allen, that have a lot of experience and some have experience at the University of Florida. So right now, there's two guys that have coached here, John Hevesy and Billy Gonzalez. Billy Gonzalez famously left the University of Florida when he was not named offensive coordinator. Instead, Steve Adazio was. And Billy left a post-it note for Urban Meyer on his desk that said, I'm going to LSU, and left his cell phone and keys and rode out. And that was it. That was like the last they ever talked to each other, was sort of the rumor, which is a fun story. But he's coming Probably back. Probably a good move by him. Yeah, he's coming back. John's coming back. So you get two guys who understand what it's like to win national championships of Florida, and you get two guys that have been with Dan Mullen for multiple years now at a time. That's something you don't get if you get the other guys. That's definitely a leg up, right, Alan? I agree, yeah. And, you know, you you look at Dan Mullen. I, I didn't appreciate him at the time, but in 2009, when he left, uh, we really missed him. We missed him bad. I think that 2019 probably would have won the championship if Dan Mullen's still the offensive coordinator. Um, you know, it probably comes down to the Alabama game and who wins. Um, but, gosh, I mean, for as much as we were not super happy with him, when he left, we really missed him that next year. And it is huge to have a couple of guys on the staff who understand what's going on here. And, you know, Billy Gonzalez maybe has a point. Uh, he probably should have been named offensive coordinator above Steve Adasio, so maybe he was right to leave. But um, that's kind of funny that he's found his way back here now. Now, a guy that's rumored, and we're not going to get too much into this, but because it's interesting, I want to get your thoughts. Todd Grantham, who is the current defensive coordinator at Mississippi State, has been rumored to have been offered the same position at Florida. Now, if you don't know anything about that name, it doesn't ring any bells to you. He was a guy who famously during the Florida-Georgia game as Georgia's defensive coordinator, uh, Georgia calls timeout. Chaz is going to kick a 37-yard field goal near the end of the game. And he gives him the choke signal and yells at him, you know, you're effing going to choke, you're effing going to choke while giving him the choke signal. Uh, this is a guy that now may be coaching for the University of Florida. Uh, what are your thoughts on him being offered? He got fired by Georgia in 2013 for a defense underperformed. He's coaching the NFL a lot. His defenses in the past several years have done well statistically. They did very, very well this year at Mississippi State. What are your thoughts on on maybe him coming in? Uh, mixed right now. And I want to punt this a little bit because I don't – I haven't looked at him closely enough to be – really excited or not. I mean, the things I know about, I remember about him are the Chaz Henry stuff and the fact that Spencer Hall from Everyday Should Be Saturday, when he describes Todd Gratham, um, uses the term emotional blitzing. I mean, <laughs> when Gratham gets mad or frustrated, he sends a blitz, which is not really great. But, you know, if he comes, uh, maybe get ready for some emotional blitzing. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, he's had some success I have a feeling he's one of those guys that maybe just gets traded around. I'd like to have a little more info on him before I really say yay or nay. But, you know, on, I guess, benefit of the doubt with Dan Mullen, he's a guy who hired somebody like Jeff Collins, who we really liked. Um, so he can hire defensive coordinators. Um, but I'll reserve judgment on this one. Yeah, he's had a lot of success hiring defensive coordinators that are creative at Mississippi State to deal with inferior talent. As I've chronicled on this very podcast, I'm not sure how well that will work if we get the elite athletes down the road because some of that stuff is, in fact, suboptimal. 
Todd's a guy in the NFL, so he understands the full range. But regardless, my thoughts are yours. Without having dug deeper, mixed feelings are the thoughts. A lot of people want to retain Randy Shannon. Let this thing play out. I just wanted to put it on the radar for this week because it will be something I'm sure that gets talked about at this point in time. All right, so, Alan, let's ask some of these questions looking into the crystal ball of the future here. And I want to start with, what is the upside to this Dan Mullen hire? If you're going to give the upside here, what are we looking at as upside for performance on the field in the next couple of years? Well, I'm going to give like his peak, peak upside, then maybe his, what I think will be at the top of his, you know, maybe reign here. There is a chance that he gets the right guys around him and they recruit really well. And Florida is a powerhouse. I think that is within range. I think that's a very small percentage. Um, and that's why I think we're frustrated because that seems like a not big enough slice of the pie to make this higher. I think his upside is mostly he's going to win. He's going to win here. Like you said, I think nine games a year is a, you know, pretty given probably 10 occasionally. And then we'll compete for an SEC championship every few years, maybe a national championship once a decade. Now that at most places, that would be great. At Florida, you can win much bigger than that. So that's where I think the disconnect is for people like us who want to see us take a bigger swing because you can be an Urban Meyer and win championships in two out of four years. You can be Steve Spurrier and compete for championships every year, even though they only won one. Um, so I don't know. That, that maybe is okay, and we should be okay with that for the foreseeable future with the possibility of an even higher upside. But that feels like his peak. He could do it, but I think more likely scenario is what I laid out. The upside, to put this into a movie analogy, is that Dan Mullen is the character, girl or boy, pick whichever one you want, that starts off the movie looking sort of nerdy and unattractive, and by the end of the movie is like a 10 <laughs> with a super awesome personality and this diamond in the rough that everyone overlooked. That's the upside for Dan Mullen, and he very possibly could become that. I don't want you to think, based upon all the ranting I've been doing, that that can't happen. I do think there's a probability we could assign to that happening. That's possible. That's the upside, which means he does have a high ceiling that is out there. I think realistically, given that we saw his performance in Mississippi State was solid but not spectacular, he didn't reach that high level. It's likely if he averaged 8-5 and five at Mississippi State, he averages 10-3 and three at Florida which of course a lot of people will take. I think unfortunately it's it's more likely that those three losses routinely come against the guys you want to beat the most. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the fear is you can say, oh yeah, 10 and three is nice. You know, Mike Gundy does it every year at Oklahoma State, uh, but 10 and three is not so nice at the University of Florida. Our goal here is not just to win 10 games. I think everyone knows that, right? The goal here is to be competitive for SEC championships. Essentially, I would say two out of three years. I mean, you ought to be competitive. You get a rebuilding year, do it again. You ought to be at that level. That's not a Nick Saban-like level. I didn't say win SEC championships every three years. I said be competitive, right? Play close games, lose close games, be in the picture. We have no idea if that's a possibility with Dan, and I'm going to assign a lower likelihood to that. So I think realistically, like you mentioned, Alan, I think your terms are pretty good. I think occasionally when he gets the transcendent player at Dak Prescott, at Tim Tebow, he can be really dangerous. If he can surround that with a few other transcendent players and the stars align, uh, you get the right things that happen. You can sneak in like an 06 national championship like Urban did, right? Those things are possible. Um, so 
it's possible, but I think realistically, you're going to look at him being like a, a consistent nine and ten game winner, maybe with the frustration of two and three losses against teams you don't want to lose to, and that's sort of maybe some of the ceiling frustration that we have. Is I don't know that there's a realistic narrative to create that he's this two or three that becomes a ten by the end of the movie. It's more like he's a five or six and he becomes a seven and a half or eight, and you like that and you're happy with that. If Florida fans will take that, I don't really know. But I feel like that's the upside. Now, what are you most concerned about? What concerns you with Dan Mullen the most? What could go wrong the fastest, maybe? Well, I think it's going to be, if you if you take out the fan expectations out of this and like us just piling on early, it's probably recruiting. Um, and so what Florida wants, what we want, is to be essentially where Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson are right now where you're not winning the national championship every year, but you're every year, three out of four years, you're ranked in the top five and you're just a powerhouse. So you don't really have these cycles. You just continually to reload, reload, reload. Oh, maybe you catch an off year where you lost too many people. Reload, reload, reload. Um, not that you're at Alabama's crazy, crazy peak, which I don't know if anybody will ever match, but to do that, you've got to recruit at a top life five level. And I don't know that Mullen can do that. He hasn't shown that, um, that dynamic recruiter. And you could put some guys around you to do it. I mean, Florida, I think, was headed towards a top five class. I don't know if McElwain is an elite recruiter. But at Florida, you can certainly do it if you have the right staff and you have the right head guy in place. And I think Mullen could be that guy, but that's maybe where I'm most concerned right now. Yeah, this is a recruiting answer again. We gave the same answer for Jim McElwain. And I'm going to say that undid Jim McElwain more than anything else. And there's a lot of things that undid Jim McElwain. But I think it was his lack of recruiting early on that gave him a roster that's that's not balanced, that isn't talented everywhere, that's a step down, especially at some parts on defense. Um, and on offense, obviously, we have a whole host of other issues. But recruiting is going to dictate it. In fact, when you pull that, and I've done this, right, on this very pod, when you pull the three-year test, even guys like Dabo, people love to dog Dabo, like Dabo's not a great recruiter. He's significantly better than what Clemson had gotten before. And at Florida, that means you have got to be in the top five. We cannot be signing the 10th best class or the 13th best class. It has got to be one, two, three, four, or five, maybe six. And it's got to have two to three to four to five five-star players in that vicinity every single year. We cannot settle for these depth classes where we're addressing needs and we've got a few guys here and there. You have to have top-level special talents to win in the SEC, to win a national title. You have to get them. It has to be done. So the question mark on Dan Mullen is he's never had to get those guys. He's going to have to get them here. So I think he enters with the same large question mark that we saw Jim McElwain have, and I think recruiting is what would undo him the fastest. I think Obviously, Mullen has proven when you stay somewhere in the SEC for nine years, a league that's firing everyone, there's been 27 new coaches since Saban entered in 07, that you are very good at being consistent. And I think that's what Mullen will do. But consistency is not what Florida fans are going to look for. He's going to have to up his recruiting game. That is, without a doubt, in my opinion, the biggest concern. And also, the fastest way I think Mullen can win the fans over is to start pulling in big-time recruiting classes. Starting yeah. with this recruiting class right here, Alan, he needs to hold this thing together. He needs to hold this thing together. 
Now, we could spend a lot of time, and we will get into this later on this December, on looking at that class, which players fit and don't fit, who does he want to keep, what quarterback does he want to keep, does he want to keep Matt Corral? We don't have time today to address all that stuff, so we're going to push that off, but this is a big job for him right now. He's got the early signing period ending in a matter of two or three weeks. He needs to keep this class together. The question I want to ask you, Alan, is do you think he retains one or two coaches on the staff Maybe Snyder on the offensive side, uh, could be Skipper on the defensive side. But does he retain, you think, a couple of these guys to try to maintain this particular recruiting class because he knows how important it is that we don't fall down to like a 20 or 25th ranked class? I think he'd be smart to. Now, you don't want to mortgage the future to keep a couple extra guys in the recruiting class. But these guys, like we talked about Juwan Snyder, being hired basically because of their recruiting prowess. And yeah, I think this class feels like a really important class for UF. Now that you could say that every year. Um, and it really probably comes down to does Matt Corral stick? And I don't know if Mullen wants him, um, but he seems to be the guy to keeping most of these guys together. Maybe would bring some of these guys back in. And we've had two of our high profile wide receivers decommit. Could be some more guys on the way. They're sure they're waiting to see who got hired. So he's got his work cut out for him in this next week. Maybe those guys would come back in the class. Um, I don't know. I don't want to put like too much weight on it and be overly dramatic because it is just one recruiting class and the team is fairly young. But with this early signing period, he has a chance to jump in and make a big splash right here, right away. Um, so, man, there's so many factors of this. I have no idea how this is going to play out. Um, so many unknowns. Uh, but that's got to be job number one is getting these guys to sign because they can sign in a couple of weeks. You don't have the normal window of time where you could kind of put together staff and get to know these kids. You got to try to hold on to some of this because this is a really good class that we have at least committed right now. Yeah. He needs to prove that he can do this. He has no other job. He doesn't need to coach the team. He can't talent evaluate right now. He comes and he speaks to the team this week. He gets to know the players. He hires a strength coach, which is super important. There's been a tremendous amount of frustration with the Florida strength training program and football, just a tremendous amount uh, internally, externally. That's a very important hire for him. You need a guy that can take care of these players at Florida. You need a guy that can be hands-on involved and that can befriend these guys. That's a big hire for him. But primarily, he has two and a half weeks to lock it down and keep this class together as much as possible, mainly the top-end guys. If you see a spate of our four stars fall off, that is bad. I don't think... Yeah, who cares about the three Correct. Guys. Let, those, those, guys let those guys go. You can get those guys in. You can switch those guys out. We have got to maintain these players that are in the top 300, which I believe right now, Alan, we have about eight of them. Uh, we have got to maintain those guys. We have got to keep that number between eight and hopefully 10, 11, 12. We cannot let that fall to four or five or six because that means we've then handicapped ourselves yet again. And the previous two classes were already handicapped. So I think this recruiting class is a significantly important one to maintain. It will keep momentum there. It will allow us to sort of, hey, I got this. I can hold this together. It will give the program a launching pad into next year. Really crucial. So watch that closely. I don't think this makes or breaks Dan Mullen's career here. But I think this will tell us a lot about Dan Mullen, the CEO, and Dan Mullen, the recruiter. Because he's going to have to handle this correctly. He's going to have to put his expertise to work here to sort of handle what's going on with these things. Now, 
Let's just spend a little bit of time here talking about players that might thrive. We are going to dive into this, I promise you, in a future episode. We'll really look at the roster and we'll say these guys can be great in the system. These guys probably can't be. Um, Let's talk about some players who might thrive under Mullen that are on the roster now. And I'll throw out a guy like Matt Corral and say, if I'm Matt Corral's dad, a guy not on the roster yet, I want to say I advise him not to come to Florida. He's a pro-style quarterback. He's 6'2". He's like 195 pounds, does not fit the Mullen prototype. Maybe Mullen is going to meet with him and see his film and think, hey, I can build an offense for you. Mullen does build offenses around his quarterbacks, but he's not the typical guy. Yes, I know he's coached Alex Smith. I get that. I know he worked with Chris Leak. I get that. Interesting decision there. But some guys in the roster that you think, Alan, would would pop immediately in this sort of spread run-based offense, which is entirely different than what we've been running here at Florida now for several years. Yeah, this is going to be mostly skill position people, obviously, because we don't know what he's going to do on defense. But I think our running backs, especially um, our boy Malik Davis, I could just see him having so many yards in this offense because of his quick decisions and you know his kind of one-cut ability and his burst through the hole. I think P. Ryan is a guy who'd probably be fine in any offense. He's a pretty just stable guy. I could see Lemons being excellent. Um, and there's a couple of freshmen, the freshman commits, I haven't looked at them a ton, but both seem like guys who could thrive. And then I think of a guy like Tyree Cleveland in these Mississippi state offenses, often you're running the ball and then you're throwing it down the field to a guy who's one-on-one on the outside. And that's where he could dominate. So I could totally see Tyree Cleveland being a guy who would maybe not have a ton of catches, but would have one to four enormous plays a game. So those are the first guys that come to mind. Yeah, I think what I think about here is something that I've just complained about relentlessly for the past three years in this podcast is about play calling and not understanding how to call plays based upon the defense. So let me heap praise upon Dan Mullen here. Regardless of whether or not I love the spread option, Dan Mullen at Mississippi State, not at Florida. I think at Florida we were plagued by this problem. But at Mississippi State, when you look at the film, he calls plays that make a lot of sense based upon what the numbers in the box say and what the defense is giving you. Now, they couldn't always execute them because of a variety of issues, generally personnel, but they did it. They would do it. So if you marched up in the box, they're throwing on you. If you backed off, they're running on you. And so certainly those two guys you mentioned, Alan, come to mind. Cleveland and Malik Davis as guys that should have a massive upside. Lemons being a super fast guy. Massive upside. It's going to be all about speed in this offense. All about speed. If you're not fast, you're not going to see the field. Uh, at Mississippi State, he had undersized receivers. I think this year they got a bunch of guys that are 5'10". Uh, at Florida, that should not be the problem. He ought to have playmakers across the board. And if he gets any sort of competent running game, uh, you ought to be able to really get those matchups. You mentioned, Allen, and Dan Mullen is not afraid to call the proper plays at the proper time which is something, again, I want to heap the praise on him. I do not expect to be coming on this podcast next year and blasting the fact that we're continually running into a filled box. It's not what he does. So I like that. Now, if Callaway happens to be on the team, Callaway's a perfect guy for the system that Mullen wants to run. Uh, that's solid. You know, I think P. Ryan probably takes a little bit of a hit because you're not going to value consistency as much as you are the home run guy in this offense. Uh, But like you mentioned, he's consistent. He'll certainly still log BT. The tight end position is going to take what should be a significant step up. And this is ironic 
Uh, it's ironic because at Florida, one of my major concerns when Dan Mullen left with Adazio is that we literally forgot that we ever had a tight end. Mullen loves throwing the ball to tight ends. He loves throwing the ball to guys in that position. At Mississippi State, he hasn't exactly had a lot of great guys to work with there. That's been a primary problem for them. But the offense likes to get tight ends matched up. There's a reason why Aaron Hernandez excelled so much at the University of Florida. So if the talent can get there, you expect those positions to get a boost. I don't know that we have a guy on the roster that necessarily fits what Mullen wants. But I think positionally, um, you're going to see those type of players thrive in this offense. Uh, it should be something that that certainly changes. Offensive lineman-wise, Allen, and we're not going to get into this too much right now, this will be an interesting change because running the spread option is an entirely different, an entirely different attack than what we are doing now with the offensive line. And so I think we saw some guys step up that you would expect to be able to block well in any scheme. But in college, traditionally, it's difficult for a lot of these players to switch to an entirely different scheme. So the O-line will be a major overhaul coming into next year based upon the football principles of playing linemen. Yeah, right. and what you mean by that, I think, is we've been recruiting these giants, um, you know, Fred Johnson, Juwan Taylor, Stone Forsythe. These guys are huge, huge, huge. And maybe you'd want some more agile, pulling guys who can take more snaps more quickly. So that would be a guy you might see us prioritize or some guys you might see us prioritize in recruiting. Um, but maybe those guys can make the jump and you kind of offensive linemen – you kind of do what you have there at the beginning, but that might be more type of player you would see moving forward. Correct. Yeah. Smaller, faster, different scenario. Not that those bigger guys can't play it because they can, but ideally you're not looking for that same pro style blocking lineman. So that's going to be a big overhaul there. All right. The biggest question with regards to roster is certainly the quarterback position. And do you think we have a quarterback on the roster right now that fits in Mullen's system that's going to benefit from this? I don't think so, other than unless you want to convince Malik Zaire to come back for another year. Felipe Franks is, you know, while an athletic guy, is not a running quarterback. Um, Kyle Trask doesn't fit that mold. We haven't seen Jake Allen at all. I have no idea about his athletic ability, but I don't think he's a guy who, you know, really you look at it and are scared of. But, you know, who knows? Maybe he can. Maybe he could be an Alex Smith type more athletic than he looks and makes a lot of quick decisions. So he's maybe the wild card in here. Um, I don't know. Do you think Dan Mullen takes a run at trying to get Malik Zaire to stay for another year? I hope not. I don't think Malik Zaire runs this offense well either. I think he'd be a horrible fit. <laughs> uh, I, I think that the most, oh the most important thing in this offense, Chip Kelly, Urban, or this one, is quarterback running. And that's one reason why I hate it. <laughs> it is the most important. Let no one tell you otherwise. Secondarily to that is quarterback decision-making and essentially reading the field. If there's one thing we know about Felipe Franks, he might be the absolute worst quarterback at reading the field that I have seen in my time of watching Florida as an educated football fan. He is absolutely horrifically bad at making even a simple read. I can't imagine that he has any real shot of playing in a Dan Mullen-based system. And in reality, he ought to just transfer now because I do think he continues to have future value as a thrower, regardless of how horrifically bad he played this year. He still has an elite arm that most guys in the world do not have. And if he continues to apply his craft and he grows and he develops at a smaller school where the game is simpler for him, maybe he gets a crack later on. But I can't imagine him 
being our quarterback next year. That seems like a worst case scenario. I think on the roster, Jake Allen is probably the smartest quarterback that we do have. Uh, and maybe that gives him a leg up in the beginning. But we got a real problem here, Allen, at quarterback, uh, which we've had, obviously, at Florida for a long time. We've got a huge problem at quarterback with Dan Mullen's offense. We don't have a single guy who even remotely fits that. Now, Matt Corral is athletic and he can run. And I think that could be one reason why Dan Mullen just says, hey, come. It's also possible Dan Mullen now uses this next two months to convince a guy who is a dual threat quarterback that maybe is going somewhere else to say, hey, look, this is wide open. You could be the guy this year at Florida. And that will be something to follow. But the QBs in the roster, none of these guys are benefiting from Dan Mullen coming in. In fact, I imagine most of them are calling their friends, family, and parents and saying, I got to get out of here. This is really bad for me. And so that's going to be an interesting I think, narrative to follow as we move forward here through the next two weeks. All right, now, Alan, we've covered a lot about Dan Mullen. We just spent like 40 minutes talking about him. Hopefully, you guys as listeners have heard enough of our pontifications on him. This won't be the end of the discussion, but is there anything we missed that you want to bring up before we take a quick look at the Florida State game? No, I think you rounded into this, is that it's not that Dan Mullen is a bad coach. He's a very good coach. Um, I think our concerns are about can he be the like a top five coach in the country? Because college football is all about your head coach and you know what he does around him, obviously. But the guys, the elite guys win everywhere they go. And if you have a guy who can win a national championship, you know, in back-to-back championships and things like that, Florida's a place you can do that. And so feels like that's disappointing, but Dan Mullen is an excellent coach. We didn't hire, this isn't Ron Zook, um, you know, or I think even Will Muschamp, who I think has real limitations. I think Dan Mullen will be better than those guys, better than McIlwain. But are we going to be satisfied as a fan base? I don't know if that, if that is possible with Dan Mullen. I hope that it is. And that's a good encapsulation. And I think that that's, that's correct. I think that Dan Mullen is above average coach. I think he's better than these guys we've had. I don't know if he's got a chance to be elite, but it seemed lower than some of these other guys. And I think another commentary for me, Alan, is that I think Strickland did a fine job. I like his process. I mean, for years under Jeremy Foley, we didn't talk to the biggest names. And I just got a, a text right now that may or may not be accurate, but I'm going to drop it on here because this just adds credence to that. I got a text right now that says we did in fact talk to Mike Gundy before we talked to Dan Mullen and that we attempted to put feelers out there and say, let's talk about this job. And Mike essentially, uh, no, said no, he's fine at Oklahoma State. So if that's true, that's another feather in the cap of Strickland for going for first the biggest fish in Chip Kelly and then also Scott Frost and then moving down the line and then taking a guy in Dan Mullen who is absolutely a rock solid football coach without a doubt. Don't confuse that. I don't love the offense. I don't love the offense from any practitioner that runs it. It doesn't mean it can't win. And I will happily eat crow down the road if Mullen goes on to have tremendous success, especially if it entertains me. And my biggest fear, and that's what I want to put on this thing, is not about winning games. I think I'll win games. It's about being entertained when I watch us play. I want to have fun watching this team play. And my football death sentence I talked about earlier had to do with the fact that I'm just not sure I'm going to have a lot of fun watching this team play, given the way they've historically run offense. And I hope I'm dead wrong about that, but I want to be clear, that's my concern. It's hard to find a lot of coaching concerns, especially as a floor strategy with Dan Mullen, which is why we put him 
in our four strategy class. And if the story is true, that in fact we talked to a guy like Mike Gundy, then I think the narrative you heard Alan and I espouse earlier, which was that essentially we're at Sunday, a lot of these other guys may not come either. You take a guy like Dan Mullen, who does have that diamond in the rough ability. He could surprise us. He's taking the job. He understands it. And maybe he hits a home run. But this hire is definitely not one that I think is rightfully so moving the needle for Florida fans. But I also don't think, Alan, that that has anything to do with the Florida job not being desirable. And lo and behold, he took Dan Mullen being the he, the Florida job over the Tennessee job, which is also highly ranked as a top 15, top 20 job. Uh, So I think in general, Florida remains a top five job in college football. It has a tremendous amount of pool. But nowadays, there's more parity in the game. You can win at more schools. You don't have to just be in Florida to win. And I think that weighs heavily on these guys. But I don't think if the facilities were any better that we would have gotten Scott Frost or Chip Kelly, in my opinion. So with that, we have Dan Mullen. Obviously, tons more discussion to come on Dan Mullen in the future. We are not done with that. We just tried to give you guys a taste of what Alan and I's thoughts are. And now, as briefly as possible, Alan, the Florida State game, total disaster, complete train wreck, sad, embarrassing, horrible. I mean, any way you want to chalk it up, gifting them a game and a rivalry now. We've lost a million games in a row. Uh, is this the lowest point of your fandom or our fandom or every all these listeners? Has it been lower before or is, was that it on Saturday? Possibly. Possibly. I. It's funny... Because I felt like there were, maybe this is the lowest. There's been lots of moments along the way like this is the lowest. When I think it was Ron Zook when we got blown out at home by LSU. And it was like, I've never seen that. That doesn't happen. You know, and when we fired him later on. Um, there's definitely some low moments. The Georgia Southern loss sticks out in my mind. But considering we already fired our coach, we're having the worst year of my lifetime, or, you know, since the Spurrier era, where Chip Kelly and Scott Frost weren't coming, it was a pretty brutal moment. I know a friend of the pod, Rick Kingsley, I know it was his nadir that he was (laughs) pretty hopeless at that moment and pretty distraught, and you're hoping some rocket would take us out of that by a coaching hire, and that didn't really happen. It could be. Uh, all that to sum up, probably yes. And I don't even know if I have the emotional punch. It wasn't like, I am so mad, I'm so depressed. It was just like, oh, I don't know that I have anything left in me right now. Yeah, that was the lowest point for me because of what happened in the week. I thought we're going to get Chip Kelly. And not for sure, but I was thinking, hey, you know what? This is going to be awesome. And then as soon as the UCLA, UCLA news hit and we did the pod, you know, I think most of our listeners heard that we didn't feel so great about that. And it was sort of like a scary moment. I was very scared by that. And then it culminated on Tuesday or Wednesday with me knowing it was over and then thinking, okay, well, maybe there's a shot that Scott Frost listens to us, although that's unlikely. And then that dies on Saturday. And then we die on the field on Saturday. We looked completely incompetent. And I think to myself, where do we go from here? And and yes, Simon and Garfunkel was playing on repeat in my mind. I sent the gif out a million times. That's how I felt on Saturday and on Sunday. And as I'm doing this podcast with you today, Alan, I'm starting to feel better <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like, you know what? Jim McElwain is no longer our coach and we couldn't get Frost or Kelly and we tried and I'm totally okay with that. I've just said on this podcast, we fired the red shots. And hey, if we tried to get Mike Gundy, I'm feeling even better. 
And now we have Dan Mullen, and I'm feeling good that Dan Mullen did embrace the expectations and the challenge here. And that means a lot, I think, for my funnel of analysis. So that was as low as I could get, though, really. Uh, I'm higher today than I was, but that's the lowest point I've ever been. I've always had hope, and I think for a lot of moments on Saturday night and Sunday, I was sort of like, you know what? I'm sort of just done with Gator football, I think, emotionally. I think it's over. Like, I don't think we're going to be great. I don't think we're going to be fun to watch anymore. And that's been what's killed me the most is we're just not fun to watch. And we're sort of an incompetent football team. And we either are Tennessee or we're darn close to them. And and this is just the reality of being a Florida Gator football fan. And I don't want to be the person that 20 years later is still talking about the glory days. You know, I don't I don't want to be Nebraska. Uh, which 17 years ago is relevant and hasn't been since then. But it felt like we're on that path. And we might still be on that path. But it's hard to think about it getting any lower than that was with just an incompetent showing, an incompetent display of football against our rival on Saturday at a home game in the swamp at noon. Just really sad, 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 sad. My text messages were sad. I was sad. Just bad stuff. So for me... That's the lowest it's been. So maybe I feel thankful now that I can't get any lower than that. There is no lower. You rock that. bottom. I hit it. Rock I bottomed bottom. out. <laughs> Ugh, um, so here, let me explain like maybe my process a little bit too with the game. Like we talked about last week leading up to it. This is the most important rivalry to me. It's the team I hate the most. Uh, you know, being we have something that we were doing on Saturday night that I had to be at. So I had a choice of you know, watching the game, starting with the second half and going back and and watching the first half later, which I've done before um, with that noon cook. I couldn't start it from the beginning. And I got home right at halftime, was watching the second half. And towards the end, I was like, you know what? I never do this. I'm a person who watches every, I've watched every second of every Florida game that I can remember since going to UF. If I show up at the stadium, I have a rule. I never leave early. I think I've left one time in like, you know, since 1999 early. Um, Every terrible blowout, every pitiful showing. And I turned the channel, so to speak. I flipped over to Ohio State, Michigan. And I didn't go back and watch the first half. So that probably should show you how I felt about that game and how bummed out I was. I, I don't even want to talk about how inept we were and the the pick sixes. And it was just so infuriating in the moment. And I hate FSU so much. That's the part. Okay. If I can access a little anger there, that's the part where I was pissed. And then I probably rounded out from there. Well, let me just encapsulate my thoughts on that game with Felipe Franks's comments afterwards. Felipe, you threw three picks. All three of them went for touchdowns, except one guy sniped himself on the one yard line. How do you feel about that? And I'm totally paraphrasing and making this sound more fun than it was, but something along the lines of, well, you know, hey, I feel fine. Tom Brady has thrown three picks before and I'll get better. That's like a cute phrase, but it's so tone deaf because of what you said. It, it's just, it reminds me of what Ben Troop said when he said these players at Florida right now, they don't understand what it means to be a Florida football player. And it reminds me of my friends who played on the team with Urban Meyer when Urban stopped the plane after a loss on the way back his first year, and he spent 20 minutes on the tarmac saying, you guys don't get it, and half of you aren't getting it, and this will be the end of your football careers, and the other half of you need to get on and convince these guys to jump on board with you because this is not what you do at Florida. 
And we have reached loserville when the quarterback of your team loses to the arch rival and is so blissfully unaware of that reality that it's common. It's no big deal. Tom Brady's thrown three picks. No big deal. It's ridiculous where we are as a four and seven football team. And I'm not harping on Felipe Franks. He's just a young dude. I'm just encapsulating the culture of the program. And that's what happens when you repeatedly lose and your hope is dashed in that whole game. I wasn't emotionally invested, but I was like you, Alan. I just didn't really want to watch it. It was terrible. I'd watch other games. And the Michigan-Ohio State game was, of course, a fun one. And with that, Alan, why don't you change the subject mercifully and walk us through (laughs) the games that mattered last weekend, of which there were plenty. Uh, There were a couple great ones, obviously. I know you enjoyed watching them as much as I did. But let's discuss some of those uh, so I can stop talking about my own team. (laughs) All right. Um, Wow, this is maybe one of the games of the year. And I went to bed at halftime because it was on so late Friday night. USF 42, UCF 49. What a crazy game that was that was just so fun what a fun game I mean man that's how football should be when everything matters I loved it UCF running the kickback when USF ties it just sort of mania uh, but a really fun game packed house there at UCF I think that's going to be the peak for most UCF fans that's going to be the height Uh, Scott Frost is going to go to Nebraska I don't know that you ever reach that height I'm not going to say again, because UCF certainly has things going for it, but most likely again, yes, they play a conference championship and yes, they'll go to a bowl game, but that was a home game experience for UCF to remember forever. I hope those fans bottle up and enjoy it because that junk ain't coming back soon, but tons of fun. Uh, Charlie Strong could not stop them, did not have the players to stop them, tried multiple schemes to do it. I thought Frost adjusted well. I thought it displayed uh, you know, the coaching talent really on both sides. It has off to Charlie Strong. He played a great game. USF sort of looked dead for a lot of this year, but they came to play on that one. And that was just a fun, fun football game. So UCF now gets Memphis this weekend and they've got a chance to, I guess, supposedly mathematically still sneak into a playoff somehow, although I think that's entirely unrealistic. But great no, college, no great college football game on a holiday weekend. Clemson 34, South Carolina 10. I thought South Carolina would keep this a little closer. The Fighting Will Muschamps could not get it done. Clemson, way too much for them. And this is what we try to talk about, right? This is what I try to tell people. Oh, do you think Will Muschamps is going to turn around? No, he's not. He's not going to turn it around. Like, this is a the best case Will Muschamp year. Yes, he'll get better talent in there. Blah, blah, blah. He got to beat up on the SEC least. And when he plays a real team and a Clemson team who is obviously better than we think they are, but not nearly as good as they're going to be, he gets walloped at home. And the good news is I don't think Dan Mullen's going to be a Will Muschamp. But this just, for those of you out there that like to hate on my three-year rule, just keep watching Will Muschamp because I can almost assure you, assure you that he's not going to get on this elite level. That's a sad result for South Carolina. They should not have gotten beaten like that. It also illustrates how just horrible the SEC East is and how these teams are getting wins against subpar competition. But uh, Clemson, on the other hand, rides into their showdown with Miami with a lot of momentum. That's still a good win for Clemson. It's a bad loss for South Carolina and a good win for Clemson. Both of those things can be true. And uh, I think that's what I took away from that one. All right, Notre Dame, the wheels are coming off. They only put up 20 against Stanford, who put up 38. Stanford just crushes them. This is why that guy wrote an article about Shaw coaching the Gators. Like the dude's a legit coach. He's not going to coach the Gators, but this Stanford team gets better every single year. And Notre Dame just unwound Brian Kelly, a lot of question marks there for him. 
I'm sure the Notre Dame fan base has a lot of questions this offseason as they're sitting around their tables at Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and they're discussing what they want to do in the future because that that is not that is not a good ending to that season. All right, Georgia 38, Georgia Tech 7. Again, a game I thought it would be a little bit closer. Georgia Tech had nothing for Georgia on this day. This just keeps cementing what I fear about Kirby Smart. And I'm getting so tired of hearing people tell me that all they do is run the ball and all they do is this and blah, blah, blah. That's such a tone-deaf football argument to me. And yeah, I'm fired up today, obviously. Like everything I say is like a fired opinion. But I'm sick of hearing that. Like Kirby Smart is making the most of what he has and he is crushing crushing teams that are competitive. Georgia Tech played a lot of teams close. All he did was go in there and wax them. So I don't know what it takes for Florida fans to wake up and recognize that what he's doing is really freaking good. We should wake up and realize it. The guy's recruiting a top five class. He's crushing all the inferior competition. He's not ready to compete yet with the elites. He doesn't have a talent yet, but he's smashing people. And you better believe that if he was our coach right now, people would be ecstatic. But yet somehow there's so much cognitive dissonance with Florida fans they say, oh, yeah, it's because they have two elite running backs and blah, blah, blah. That's just ridiculous. That was a big and solid win for them. And if I'm a Georgia fan, I'm super stoked, even though I have to know this weekend's game against Auburn is probably not going to end well for me. That's okay. This is year two. I thought that was a good result. I did think, like you thought, Alan, Georgia Tech would make that game a lot more interesting than they did. Washington puts up 41 on Washington State. So beats them 41 to 14. Pretty nice win for Washington. The Cougars, you know, up and down as they've been all season. But while this is a great Apple Cup win, I'm sure it's still a little disappointing for Washington as they were a playoff hopeful for most of the season, and it's not it's not going to happen. So while this is a nice rivalry win, I'm sure they feel a little bit lacking. I love that you just said the word rivalry again. It's my favorite. Uh, yeah, but... <laughs> bring it back out. <laughs> uh, Washington, disappointing season, correct. And Washington State, curious season. I'm going to call it a Mike Leach season because that's just what, yeah. he, that's what he does. Like he, They have the number one passing offensive football, and they go lay eggs like that. And it's not acceptable, and that's the problem with Leach. Uh, but for Washington... I'm with you. Doesn't feel great. You had big expectations this season and you fell short. Maybe as a Cougars fan, oddly enough, you feel better about this year than your Washington brethren because this Probably. is like, yeah, this is like awesome for Washington State. And yes, you lost to Washington and that sucks, but you had a very fun season and uh, you seem to be trending up. Whereas Washington maybe is starting to ask questions about Chris Peterson. Yeah, this is nice and all, but we have yet to beat the elite team. So interesting sort of uh, difference of opinion there based upon the program's histories and expectations. Yeah, if I'm a Washington fan, and maybe this is easy to say from outside the program, I'm still thoroughly happy with Chris Peterson. Maybe they haven't gotten as quickly where they want to, but that team's going to be really good for a long time. And Washington State, I mean, that's just about as much fun as you can have in Pullman. That's legal. Um, and if I'm Arkansas or somebody else, I still maybe want to hire Mike Leach because it's going to be fun no matter what. Okay, a game we didn't even talk about. We didn't even talk about because it was such a massive upset. Miami, I don't even know what to say, takes a dump on the field, loses 14-24 to to Pitt. I mean, I laugh because last week Alan says, as we're looking at the show notes, hey, should we include this Pitt-Miami game? And we're like, nah. Yeah, it's Pitt. (laughs) Nah, they're fine. And, and I'm watching it, and I'm laughing on Friday as Miami's getting rolled by Pitt. I mean, just dominated. And uh, this is not a surprise. I think this is the forever 
damning thing against Mark Richt is that dude can't do it. It's like he just wow. can't he just can't do it. He has really frustrating and confusing results when he should not have them. And Miami fans, I think, were hoping he turned a corner. And this is just yeah. yet another sign to me that he hasn't. And of course, this game does not hurt them at all in the playoffs. So technically it's a great game to lose, but this is just what we said. We keep saying they're a pretender. They're not a contender. I think most of you listeners are wise enough to also be on that train. I don't think any of you were thinking my was a contender. But it doesn't matter. They shouldn't lose to Pitt. Like, lose to Clemson. Don't lose to Pitt. And that's just a really poor loss from a coach who tends to lose games just like that. The score's even the same. You could just flip that around, and it could say Florida, Georgia, 24-14, and you could have memories of us doing the same thing to them. Except this is Pitt. So, really interesting and bad loss but Miami has everything still to play for I know this was so funny because Miami had won all those close games like oh you know what they're kind of gutting these things out and then they have those big wins against Virginia Tech and Notre Dame like wow okay Miami is legit legit now they figured it out like you said turned a corner and no one saw this coming I did not hear a single person talk about this and Pitt's not awful but they're not good by any means um so, yeah, that's got to be pretty distressing. Okay, the game, Ohio State 31, Michigan 20. I think Michigan needed this game more than Ohio State did, but Ohio State stays in the playoff hunt, you know, despite the fact they've gotten blown out by Iowa. So uh, this is a good game, better than that score indicates. Uh, Michigan up early could not hold on. Do you think that this is like Urban slash Pope Meyer – lucky break number two when JT Barrett goes out with an injury? <laughs> Maybe. The cameraman I, taking him down? I mean, I don't... Do you think they win this game with JT Barrett? It didn't look like they were going to. Yeah, Haskins looks good. I mean, it's like you need a savant out there running this offense, but really it seemed like Ohio State's defense started turning the screws more than anything. Um, Michigan just didn't have the horses really to like stay with them the whole game is maybe what the other side of the storyline is. Yeah, that's probably true. But I thought JT Barrett seemed like he could have played there in the fourth quarter and give Urban credit. He kind of stuck with Haskins, but a similar sort of story. Uh, of course, I'm just jealous that other teams can win when their quarterbacks go down and they can actually do stuff because we can't win with our primary quarterback or backups. But either way, Interesting scenario, of course. I think Ohio State won a national championship solely because JT Barrett got hurt a couple of years ago, and that allowed Cardale to come yeah. in and, and run a different style offense than anyone saw coming. Haskins is more in the same vein uh, as Barrett, but he's a much better pure thrower, although I think JT Barrett's a better quarterback at this point. But either way, just something to keep an eye on. Thought it was interesting. Very fun game. It looked the part. Sort of gray skies, coldish weather. Uh, I love that in November rivalry game like that one. It was it was fun to watch. I enjoyed it immensely. And I guess Wilson Spate did not enjoy it as the quarterback of Michigan has announced he's transferring to a different program because he's had enough of the Jim Harbaugh circus up there in Ann Arbor. Wow. All right. Speaking of rivalries, Alabama 14, Auburn 26. The Iron Bowl delivers once again. And for me, James, Auburn just looked better. I mean, Alabama almost snuck back in that game. They had a few nice drives throughout the course of the game, but Auburn's defense looked excellent. Jarrett Stidham looked phenomenal. Carrion Johnson, super tough. You know, we'll talk about that game moving forward. Um, 
yeah, they just look like the better team, really. And they could have won by even more. I think at this point in time, Auburn is the best team in the country. And I mean that seriously. And that's hard to believe, Alan, because you and I had Auburn's Gus Malzahn on a pretty darn hot seat, which I think he legitimately earned for himself. And he turned this around. And, you know, I like talking to our buddy, Chris Musgrove, who's a big Auburn fan, listens to this podcast uh, at times anyway to sort of get the pulse on us. But it's been fun to gauge his reactions. And after the game, he was just sort of texting that he, he can't believe it. Like, he can't believe how frustrated he was early on and now how well this team is playing. And Gus Malzahn, you can tell, was like riding this wave of energy. He's talking yes. trash in post-game reports. Uh, he is feeling it right now. And that Auburn team is feeling it right now. And you do not want to play them. So it will be interesting to see if they can beat Georgia, uh, a scrub team, Alabama, and Georgia again. Uh, that's you know that's that, that's a solid slate of football for them. But really fun game. I could not tell you how happy I was to see Auburn win. And most importantly, those of you that are dedicated listeners to the show know that I can't stand the Nick Saban floor strategy with Alabama. Jalen Hurts is not a quarterback, and it made them pay dearly in that game against Auburn, and I loved it. Grow a pair of Nick Saban and play real football where you go for your ceiling and not a floor so you can actually compete in these various games. This is what you get for taking the ultra-safe strategy. It makes me very happy. I hate the ultra-safe strategy. That's a side note. At any rate, let's go Auburn. Continue to beat the evil umpire that is Alabama. I loved it. All right. SEC roundup in games that no one really cares about. We'll fly through these. Louisville smashes Kentucky 44-17. So much for Mark Stoops turning things around this year. Uh, the battle of Kentucky goes again to Louisville. Yeah, maybe the most interesting thing about this game was the brawl with Lamar Jackson and the Kentucky player. Um yeah, they just looked out class, and Kentucky handled them last year, and I don't think this Louisville team is any better, so I don't know what happened with Kentucky at the end of the, end of the year this year. Yeah, just a weird team throughout the season. Vanderbilt crushes Tennessee 42-24 yes. at Tennessee, and I love it whenever that happens. doesn't happen often if you're a Vandy fan. You're probably still pleased with Derek Mason this year. Lots of weird, bad results. Didn't win hardly any SEC games, but maybe one SEC game, <laughs> that one. <laughs> but, uh, hey, Vandy beats Tennessee. Wow. If you're talking about low, this has got to be just a surprising low for Tennessee, considering where they were this time last year. Um, losing to Vandy like that, I mean, come on. That's just embarrassing. That's one. That's their in-state rival. They should never lose to Vandy, Vanderbilt that badly. I mean, they've already fired Butch Jones, I know, but that's, that's a <laughs> – oh, Tennessee, man, they are a hot mess. They cannot get it together. It is fun to laugh at them. It would be so much more fun if we were really good and they were horrible and we could laugh at them. But regardless, I do love laughing at Tennessee. And I love their fans' passion. I've said many times that they're my favorite SEC fan base. I really do want them to be good again because it's so much more fun. But at least when they're bad, they're just wildly entertaining. Uh, Texas yeah, State, real quick. Do you see yeah. the stat? Where, hey, hold on real quick. Do you see the stat where they have now lost their most recent game to every team in the SEC? <laughs> That's is, almost unfathomable. That, I don't even that know a, how that's possible. Is that a real thing? I mean, they lost all their games. In that, the, yes. They lost all their games in the SEC this year. So that just means that all the rotational. Yes, and so every other team, they've lost their last, the most recent meeting with them. 
I'm so glad you told me that. That's that's diabolical. Oh my gosh, that's that's incredible. They should hire Mike Norvell, by the way. To me, that's a no-brainer. Hire they Mike should. Norvell to take a shot on him. He could be a home run or a failure, but I think people would be excited about that. Uh, just do the obvious thing there and and see what he can do. Okay. A&M 21 and LSU 45. A, Kevin Sumlin is gone. Now maybe Jimbo Fisher mm-hmm. goes there. Well chronicled on this podcast about Jimbo Fisher's personal life in Tallahassee. And B, <laughs> LSU, the grand experiment we keep talking about, two of the best coordinators in college football with a sort of buffoon head coach who can recruit. So far, the year one experiment, I think, has gone fabulously well given that really they seem fortunate to have beaten us and then somehow went on a roll. They got better as the year went on, I think. I mean, they have a win over Auburn and a loss to Troy. It was a weird year overall. Maybe that's about what you can expect for Kojo. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely capable of beating a team like A&M at the end of the year here. Old Miss 31, our coach Dan Mullen 28. I think the storyline in this one is that Fitzgerald has a pretty gruesome leg injury early on mm-hmm. in that game, and Old Miss pulls it out. Really impressive year from Matt Luke at Old Miss. They retained him. I think the primary reason there is they're going to get smacked with a bunch of who knows whether it's scholarships or bands or whatever. It's not going to be good. And this guy did a heck of a job. I think they're 6-6 six and six this season. Uh, they would have gone to a bowl game, but they banned themselves from going to try to say, hey, look at us. We're, you know, we're already punishing ourselves. But what a year by them. We kept mentioning it kind of every SEC roundup. Hey, look at Ole Miss. They're competitive. Hey, look at what they're doing. And they got better. And uh, for Mississippi State, a, a team that wanted to finish the year ranked, that's sort of a frustrating and unceremonious end, not fitting of Dan Mullen's tenure. The people in Mississippi State love Dan Mullen. They love that guy. They're very sad to see him go. Would have been more fitting if he was able to pull that one out. Missouri, 48. Arkansas, 45. Raise your hand if you didn't see that one coming. Missouri, one of the hottest teams in the country. I thought they were just going to put Arkansas to sleep. But that was a wildly competitive game. And Brett Bielema's last game at Arkansas. Yeah, that was... I was surprised that you know Arkansas kind of stuck that out. Because Missouri's just been rolling people. But I guess that's still the state of the talent on both those teams. That Arkansas is still talented enough to play with Missouri. Yeah, and Brett Bielema basically getting fired about three seconds after the game ended in his office. So uh, they could not wait to show him the door. And it would be really interesting who they hire. I think the right coach can be pretty decent there. Yeah, I think they can win there. Arkansas is sort of a forgotten about program. But I think that you can be uh, at least moderately successful. And I think a guy like Mike Leach, I'd be all up on that if I was an Arkansas fan. If he wants to come and do that, I would be taking that one. All right, let's transition just for a moment here to the high of last week, which for me was Gator basketball. Now, we've gotten a lot of requests to do some Gator basketball stuff on this very show. I think we will indulge you and do that. This is going to be just a quick discussion on what I think, Alan, was the most entertaining regular season college basketball game I have ever seen, which was Florida Gonzaga, tipped off past midnight East Coast time on Friday night, played well into 2.30 in the morning before it ended in double overtime. What a joy to watch that game. We could break down the coaching decisions and all the things that went down at the end, all the big shots that were made and how Will Hudson played, but what a fun, fun basketball game that was, right? Yeah, I loved it. 
It was crazy because so for me, these games were happening, you know, in the early morning. So I just got up and watched them on, you know, ESPN.com replay, not knowing the score or anything. And it was you know, I was so stressed out during that game. I was like, this is so funny because this game is already done. I'm yelling at the TV like I normally do. I loved it. Love the heart and competitiveness from those guys. They didn't have a great game. You know, Igor Kulichov, you know, went ice cold. And he's a guy who's been putting 20, and then Jalen Hudson just loses his mind in the second half and overtime. Really gutty game from Chioza. And they're still missing Agbunu, and that's the game they really could have used them in because their bigs were obviously torching us. Um, so I love just the determination from a smaller team and, and great coaching by Mike White to keep those guys in it. Yeah, terrible game by three gore in that one really struggled travels at the end and then gives the ball back to Gonzaga to get a very clean shot off. We sort of survived and dodged a bullet there. Ultimately though, great, great team win. Super exciting. I know that uh, Dan from Indiana, Dan Deckish or whatever his name is, had talked about how that was the worst. Yeah. Who I can't stand him either. But afterwards he was saying that that was maybe the best regular season game he'd ever seen as well. Uh, Just a really incredible game. And we followed that up on Sunday with the game against Duke, where we led twice in double digits, including leading by 17 with nine minutes and 54 seconds left before ultimately falling to Duke by three. I was getting several texts about, hey, James, you love Mike White. His tactics are so great. Did he not just have a Billy Donovan-like collapse? Alan, what did you think about us blowing that 17-point lead with the last nine minutes left? Well, we went into kind of a shell strategy where we're basically running – the same play, bleeding time off the clock. And I don't know if that was a coaching error or that Mike White felt like the game was slipping away from us because our team was just a little gas. We're having to play small against big the whole game. And didn't Chioza looked on fumes there, was making starting to make some bad choices, I think, because he was tired. So it could have been just a great tactical error from that point. Normally, I hate that. And as we're doing it, I'm like, we've got to keep playing. We've got to keep playing. And we didn't, and we couldn't hold on. And if we just hit a few more shots, I think we still win that game. But yeah, I didn't love the way we ended it, but you know, love that we were in it against Duke, who's maybe other, you know, other more talented than Kentucky, I would say. But yeah, I guess has the most raw talent. Bagley's incredible. So the fact that we were able to hold in up against them and even dominate them at times is a really great sign. I thought it was interesting to hear Jay Billis, Duke grad, who was commentating on the game, and you could tell he hadn't watched us really play a lot this year. I think he had a high opinion of us, but his opinion became about 100 times higher as the game went on. Sort of comments like, wow, this Florida team is really good. Like, wow, these guys can really score, and us are pretty incredible. And look at Chioza. Uh, I think we opened a lot of eyes in this tournament, but it was falling flat on our face at the end, and I like it. I like it. So my friends are texting me, hey, isn't this a billy-like collapse? A, no, it's not, because this is the first time I've watched Mike Dwight do this. And B, I think there's no better time with the current team we have than to sort of clam up and go into a shell with nine minutes left than right now in November against the most talented team in the country in Duke. Because that's going to teach this team, hey, if you want to play like Golden State and rain threes and play fast and play small ball, you have to maintain that. 
until the game is completely out of hand. We are not a good half-court offense. If I were to break down the film of basketball like we do in football, we could talk a lot about how we went into the half-court offense. Like you mentioned, Alan, we attempted to drain the clock out, run an ISO play, maybe a ball screen, get the switch we wanted and score, which look, in the NBA, that's exactly what you would do. But in college, especially with our team right now, not a great strategy and not something we do very often. I imagine you will not see us do that again. And I think both Mike White and the players are to blame here. I think Mike White thought we're up 17. Both teams are tired. Uh, Let's just go ahead and see this game out. If we only score on 20, 25% of our shots, we're going to win this game, which by the way, would have been true. We missed several layups, had several threes go in and out, missed the front end of a one-on-one that would have given us a lead to make both those shots. That probably would have been true. But I think the reality is we were outclassing Duke. The game was ours. We needed to take that game much like we did in double overtime against Gonzaga where we just kept shooting. And instead, I think we scoreboard watched a little bit. We clock watched and we wanted to drain the clock each time. And then Duke made some big plays at the end. Obviously, Hudson, who had been a hero, uh, gets ripped and misses the front end of one-on-one. But I think those are blessings in disguise. If I know anything about Mike White, the guy's tactically super solid. I think this entire team is going to use this as a way to finish off teams in the future. And they should take a lot of confidence from knowing that not only can they play with Duke, they were running Duke out of the gym. And Duke has a weird team right now. They have not figured themselves out. But the goal in basketball is to be better at the end of March, not in the beginning or the end of November, December. And I think this team has a lot of upside. Although I do think we should have won that game and different tactics would have led to that. If you're going to make a tactical failure in basketball, that's the right time to do it. And I expect this team to learn from that uh, while also coming out of that game with confidence and swagger. And I'm super excited to watch this team play basketball this season. They are just so much fun to watch. And at this point in time, my primary concern is whether Kulachov can play at this level. I think you've seen a couple of games against elite competition where he really looked lost and he struggled. On the flip side of that, he's having to guard other teams' all-world centers and he's 6'5", and he really should be guarding a two or a three guard. And so when we're getting Bunu back, we get Stokes back, things will change for him. So keep an eye on him, but also give him maybe a little bit of a break. I mean, he's got Bagley guarding him. He's a lottery pick in the NBA draft. It's not really what should be happening on the floor. So keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on him, because we're going to need him to be better, obviously, in those games. But I think tremendous effort by our boys to play the way they did without a single true big on the roster, minus Hayes against two really good teams in Gonzaga and Duke. Uh, I really love this current edition of of the Mike White Gator basketball guys, and I think Chioza might be the best point guard in the country right now. That guy has taken his game to a whole nother level, and it is going to be just a ton of fun watching them play. Yeah, he looked fantastic. Love him. And he's been really solid, except for that one stretch where he seemed like he's on drugs or you know throwing games, as we said. And I think this might be good for us in another way. If we had won that game, we'd probably move to number one. And who knows how this team handles that. Uh, so maybe this keeps them hungry a little bit, keeps them moving forward. Um, could be the best thing for us in the long run. Okay, James, there's a great slate of games. As usual this weekend, it's championship weekend. Let's run through some of these really fun ones. Let's start with Friday night, Stanford versus USC. USC's a three-point favorite. I like Stanford in this game. I think they're they're peaking. I think they're playing good football. I think they've gotten better every single week. I think USC fell short of expectations this year. This would be a nice way to salvage their season. 
they're favored by three, but I think I think all the momentum is in Stanford's corner right now. I'm going to take Stanford as well. I think their physicality is going to overwhelm USC in this game. Uh, you're right, they're playing better, and I think the quarterback play has gotten a little bit better, and that's helping them a lot. All right, Memphis versus UCF. UCF, a seven-point favorite. Even though they beat them by a good amount, does that tell you that Memphis is coming on here? It does. I mean, Memphis lost 40-13 to 13 in this game earlier in the year. I'm very tempted to pick Memphis in this one just because I feel like Scott Frost's life is insane. It's incredible to see how well his team has performed given all of the distractions that are out there. I have not seen Memphis play aside from watching them on film. I've never seen them play live, which changes the way you watch a team. Uh, and because of that, I'm going to stick with UCF finishing off their season. They've come so far, but I will be curious to see how that game goes. Memphis, if USF scored 42 on UCF, you've got to think Memphis is going to score a lot more than 13. And I have not watched that game, so I don't know what happened or why it happened. So I'm talking out in the blind here, but that should be a great game to watch. And that's a a noon game on Saturday. So you kind of get a, a bonus fun championship game. Uh, it's in addition to our next game to watch on Saturday. So really, really solid slate of games here. I'm going to take UCF as well. Scott Frost has managed to keep these guys focused through a lot of distractions. It feels like maybe most of that's passed. Could be a letdown after that huge UCF USF win uh, or just game in general. Um, but considering how much they won by before, it feels like a pretty safe bet. TCU versus Oklahoma. Oklahoma favored by seven. It feels like that line is too small because Oklahoma has everything to play for and TCU is playing the disruptor and you better believe TCU wants to disrupt Oklahoma. Oklahoma's defense, if they just show up at all, this is a game Oklahoma wins handily. But you just never know what's going to happen with that defense. And the Big Ten, I almost feel like they probably want to tell Gary Patterson, look, please let Oklahoma win. I don't want to go two years in a row without a team in the playoff. Please, please, please let this happen. I think the Big Ten is just the most afraid conference there is right now, and they do not want Oklahoma to lose. So lots of pressure on Oklahoma. Interesting result here, but I think Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma gets this done. I want them in the playoffs. They're such an interesting team. Baker Mayfield is so much fun to watch. Uh, I really hope that that they get it done. So I'm going to pick with my my heart here and say they, they win and cover that seven-point spread. Yeah, I'm going to take Oklahoma here as well. TCU, I guess, has an outside-outside shot at the playoff. Maybe if the committee likes them more with this win. I don't see that really happening. Oklahoma could win the championship this year. This, There's no dominant team. Like, I think it's a pretty flawed year. Um, and so some people, I'm way against you, on. by the way, on wanting 18 playoff. I am definitely happy with four. I like the way the end of the year shapes up because of that. So uh, maybe that's a little contrarian, but I'll take Oklahoma here. And that means they're making it into the playoff, I guess. So UGA, can they respond against Auburn? Auburn only favored by two and a half, though. I can't believe that line. This makes me raise all my eyebrows and then some extra ones because I'd like to go put a large wager on that. Two and a half points for Auburn. I mean, (laughs) Auburn, all they did was just beat Alabama and then they smashed UGA. Oh, but wait, not so fast, my friend. There's a chance that Auburn will be missing both of their running backs. And most importantly, as I have learned from Chris Musgrove, Alan Williams, 
That's right. That was back-to-back first and last names there. Like it. Auburn is really only as good as their starting running back. He carries that team. And if he's not in this game, I think the odds makers say that Auburn is not in this game at the level they should be. So this game has gotten a lot more interesting. So therefore, Vegas does know something. And they know that Auburn's performance minus a horse of a running back has been a huge problem for them all season long. And that's what they're hedging their bet on right here. I still think Auburn gets this done despite of that. But but that is, in fact, a big deal to Auburn's football team. Yeah, it's crazy to see Carryon Johnson go out. And then the backup, who's kind of a small guy, gets one carry, I guess, twists his ankle. And then they put him back out there after they retaped it. I'm like, this game is in hand. Just give it to the fullback. I guess that's how big that feeling is against winning at Alabama. You're not thinking about anything else. Yeah, that line feels low, except for those injuries. And I just don't know that Auburn's going to be able to run the ball nearly as well, and that makes them a lot easier to stop. But I'm still going to take Auburn in the, you know, even two and a half feels like if you're going to pick Auburn, you're fine with that. Okay, Miami versus Clemson. Clemson, nine and a half point favorite. Does that feel rather large to you? It does feel large, but I think that what the odds makers are looking at here is Clemson's defensive line and Miami's inept offense which has been a story now for multiple weeks, and the defense has covered it up. Clemson has not turned the ball over. They play really clean football, and they get after the passer. And I think they see a narrative here where Clemson jumps on Miami, and I see that same narrative. I think that Mark Rick's team has been exposed. I think Dabo Sweeney has maybe as quietly as any defending national championship ever has is cruising into an ACC title game with the playoffs on the line, defending their title with pretty much nobody really caring. And hats off to him for flying so far under the radar. It's truly incredible to me that they're just that far under the radar. But here they are, 10-point favorites against a Miami team that I think the country is maybe more aware of. But I like Clemson and the points here. Yeah, I'm going to take Clemson as well. We're kind of in lockstep here. Miami feels coming off this game, I I don't know that they're going to have any kind of confidence playing against Clemson here. And Clemson kind of sneakily will start putting it on you, and they tend to close games pretty well. All right, Ohio State favored by six against Wisconsin. Can Wisconsin pull this off and go undefeated? No, but I really, really, really want them to. And I think they're a good football team. I really do. And I think they can give Ohio State problems. But this is just a game that Urban Meyer wins. It's a team that's not as athletic as his, and you can look through Urban Meyer's resume and know that he makes a living off stomping teams that are not athletic athletic as his. However, Wisconsin does have the power component, which does give Urban Meyer teams trouble. I just don't think this is the year for Wisconsin to get it done. They're a nice story. They played a really soft schedule. They avoided all the big dogs in their conference. I'm going to say Ohio State covers the spread minus six, but I am rooting hard for Wisconsin and therefore playoff chaos. Yeah, I'm going to go Wisconsin. I'm going to go, excuse me, Ohio State here as well. I just can't get the memory of that championship game a couple of years ago where they, people are like, can Ohio State win with a backup quarterback? And then Cardell Jones comes in. They win like 56 to nothing or something like that. It was crazy. Wisconsin, I mean, even if they win this game, it feels like their resume still sucks. I mean, they have played the weakest possible alignment of games in the Big Ten. It's crazy how the schedule 
shook out and that's not their fault, but yeah, they still seem like a thoroughly average team to me. I could be very wrong, but until proven otherwise, I'll have to take Wisconsin. Gosh, done that twice. I'll have to take Ohio State. Maybe I should just pick Wisconsin here since I keep saying that. All right, so let's do a little playoff prediction here. This is not what we want to happen. This is what we think the committee will do. James, why don't you give me your original playoff prediction from, I guess, week one, and you you re-upped it at the beginning of the year or the middle of the year, and then what you're picking now. That's right. I am a man of consistency. I picked Oklahoma, Alabama, Penn State, and USC from the beginning. I stuck with them on episode Texas A&M, seven or eight. We doubled back down, and I essentially said, I do not believe in USC, and I should swap them for Clemson. <laughs> and I definitely <laughs> don't believe in Miami was the quote. That was fun. I should have done that. That's what I should have done, and I would have had maybe three out of four minus some chaos. So I'm going to keep Oklahoma. I'm going to keep Alabama, although there's the scenario which I really want to have happen is Wisconsin winning and Alabama being left out. That's like the dream scenario. Uh, but regardless, I don't think that's going to happen, so Bama gets in again, much to my own chagrin. Auburn is like a shoe in for me if they're healthy. Like I think Auburn, like I said, is the best team in the country. They're not healthy. They have to survive this game to get to the playoff. I think to then be a lot more healthy come their playoff game against Georgia. I'm going to think they do it. Uh, I just don't think Georgia has enough given Auburn's defense. And uh, I think Auburn's better than them at both phases of the game. Uh, But I'm going to go Auburn. And then lastly, I'm going to go Clemson. Of course, I think Clemson most under the radar team. Uh, also, as you mentioned, Alan, I look at those teams and I say Oklahoma, Bama, Auburn, Clemson. It looks very wide open to me. None of those teams look like a juggernaut uh, of the past. Uh, Baker Mayfield is by far the best quarterback still playing football. And he also has a team that literally refuses to play defense. So lots of interesting storylines for how those matchups would go in the playoff. But I like Oklahoma, Alabama, Auburn, and Clemson as my four. I don't really remember what I picked at the beginning of the year, um, but I did predict two SEC teams in the middle of the year. I took Bama, Penn State, Georgia, and Clemson. Clemson picks looking pretty good. I'm going to go with the exact same choices. I'm kind of, of course, hemmed in a little bit by my picks. Auburn will make it if they're in. Oklahoma will make it. Clemson will make it. And then Alabama. Let me ask you this, though, James. What are the chances you think if all of these games go the way we predicted, Ohio State wins, Clemson wins, Auburn wins, Oklahoma wins, that the committee would put in Ohio State over Alabama? The chances should be zero because you can't go to Iowa and lose by a million freaking points and get into the playoff. And if that happens, then we will know for sure that Urban Meyer has blackmail, incredible video dirt on the committee on the BCS, on other ways, because he doesn't deserve to get in there. There's just no way. As much as I don't want Alabama to get in, Alabama's loss on the road at Auburn is a million times better than a non-competitive loss to an average Iowa team. You just cannot overcome that. So Ohio State's path is Oklahoma and Clemson losing. You could say one of them, and that's probably good enough. But really, if both of them lose, then you can say, okay, Ohio State gets in, not a problem. 
that certainly is possible. But if just the scenario you laid out to me occurs, Bama is in. The committee, I don't think, would really have any possible narrative to put Ohio State in above them that makes logical sense to me. What about you? Well, they've shown that they prefer, you know, they preference big wins and they don't really care about your losses. Now that comes in a little bit and I think getting blown out should matter a lot. But Ohio State has better wins on its schedule. Um, Bama, really their best win was at Mississippi State. I mean, because Florida State fell apart, their schedule doesn't really look that good this year. Um, I could see it happening. Now, this would be the double benefit for Ohio State. You know, Penn State fans would lose their mind because basically last year, Penn State beat Ohio State but had two losses. Penn State won the Big Ten. Ohio State still made it in at one loss. And then this would be the reverse. Ohio State, you know, basically getting in because they won the championship over a one-loss team. But those big wins, I could certainly – it feels like almost like a coin toss to me because of the way the committee's gone. Now, I wouldn't agree with that assessment, but I feel like it's a lot closer than you think. So look out for Ohio State to sneak in there over Bama. Yeah, and that just uh, affirms that Ohio State has some super special secret over the committee because if I'm sitting in that room, that's ridiculous. You just cannot lose like that on the road in the middle of the season. Maybe it was week one or week two or week three and your quarterback was hurt and your backup quarterback was hurt and your whole defense didn't come, fine. But (laughs) if you have a four-team playoff, Alan, I don't think you deserve it. Now, if you go to my preferred eight-team playoff where you let these teams decide it on the road, I'm all about it. Because to me, I don't think you know this is the end of the season now. I don't think you have any idea if Ohio State is better than Alabama or Auburn or Clemson or Oklahoma unless you let them play each other, which is why I prefer that. For you, me, and a committee to sit in a room and say that, well, that loss at Iowa is the reason why they're not as good as other teams. Um, I just don't think that makes a lot of sense to me, given that you're playing the whole season to see who's best at the end. And eight teams allows you to have only quality teams in the playoff. And oh, by the way, it also allows you to have a UCF or Memphis team in there as total chaos. So you can actually see what they can do. You actually get a well, chance the problem to is see you if they can pull an upset. If people went to this, they would be, they would be like, okay, we're letting USC in and we're letting, you know, like you can have a really crappy, you know, power five champion. Or let's say, you know, there's like a two loss team or three loss team that wins the championship. You know, I don't think when you get to eight, it just gets really messy in it. You know, I thought four might devalue the regular season, but didn't really think so. Wasn't excited about it. I think eight might really change the dynamics of how the season works. So I'm, I'm pretty conservative in that. And I do not want to mess up the college football season. I think you'd have to eliminate the conference championship games because you couldn't allow for them to be like three games against, you know, Auburn and Alabama in a span of like six weeks, that would be detrimental for college football. And therefore, it's not going to happen for a while because these conference championship games print money, which is why they do them. But the reality is you'd have to get rid of them. And then I think you create a very compelling situation. In fact, I imagine, Alan, if you stop right now and you don't have these games we're having this weekend and you look at it and say, okay, pick your eight teams, it's a pretty compelling case to pick those teams. And you're going to get some of those matchups anyway. And so I think that's how you'd have to do it to ensure the integrity of it. Uh, because I am with you. I don't want to see some of these teams playing each other three times in the span of six, seven weeks. I don't think that's even fair, really, in reality. Yes, it happens in basketball. Basketball is a different sport. I think football 
you know, it happens in the NFL. Yes, I realize that. And I realize that the conference championships aren't going to go away. But even with those hurdles, I'd still prefer eight because at the end of the day, if you're the better team, you'll win. And if you're not the better team, you'll lose. And if you're somewhere in between, it's going to be an epic game because somebody's going to lose a heartbreaker at the end. And I'm all for that as a sports entertainment and as a player. I think a playoff is just the best way to decide who the champion is. And there is no perfect way. There are certainly trade-offs. And with that, Alan, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you like the content on the podcast today, please drop us a like on Facebook. Support us financially on Patreon. Alan and I certainly love that. It really goes a long way for us being able to provide the content that you guys love on the show. And you can do that using the links on our Facebook page or on our Twitter page. It's right there. It's simple. It's fast. It's convenient. And as always, thanks so much to those of you who do support us on Patreon. It means the world to Alan and I. We love doing this podcast. Love getting your feedback. If you have any thoughts, concerns, or otherwise, email Alan and not me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You can email the show at any time, and we'll get back to you promptly. Uh, with that, enjoy championship week. Enjoy the first week of Dan Mullen being our coach. And we will be back with you next Monday, where we'll break down all of the college football action, as well as get into a season wrap-up and discuss what's on the horizon. On behalf of Alan, this is James, and we'll see you next time. my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound Silence. Great news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10 or call 800 Sprint 1 today. 1979 a month after 1980 monthly credit applied with two bills with approved credit 18 month lease and new line of service. If canceled, literally remain balance due. Exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere through the activation fee restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at bioptimizers.com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.